the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before I get rolling with our guest today, I just want to mention I've got a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. If you're enjoying the happy hour, do consider throwing us a buck a month to help out with some of these costs. Today we are continuing the Guattario Brothers series, the deep dive into Felix Guattari's The Machinic Unconscious. This is actually part six of that series, and I will link the prior episodes in the show notes. Once again, joining me are Alfonso Williams, DC or at 4Q248 on Twitter, and my good friend Taylor Atkins, who translated Machinic Unconscious. And so here is that discussion. Coop, I don't know if you want to hit the record button yet. I've, I've, I've been recording just in case. Yeah, okay, Sometimes the penis cage is just the penis cage. <laughs> Sometimes it's just the penis cage. Yeah, I... Please um, keep that in the... the <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's the that's the first level of science, guys, just to, like, you know, get us anticipate a bit, right? In 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 Proust's science today's lays out the, the four different signs. The and signs. the worldly signs, that's right. And he all called them the empty signs, which is not um it's interesting that he says that and he betrays a little bit of his structuralist, you know, root here because Levi Strauss famously talked about empty signs in a different way, right? For example, the the, the term mana or mana. And but I think here, um what I like you know, Deleuze says First of all, that they're like, they're like usually the most disappointing, right? And they're, and they're basically just in their strange cruelty. And then, but, but at the same time, they are a necessary stage or just, they're just as necessary for the apprenticeship of science to, to take place, right? So, so yeah, Coop, maybe, maybe sometimes a lot of your shit posts or just the memes too, they can, they can be, they can be empty. And that emptiness is perhaps what caught, what, draws us in right? right but yeah that's like lacan right that the void is a is a productive force right which i don't know that concept i think is super i've been like obsessing over that quite a bit which one? I, just this notion of like how the void mm. especially like particularly in lacan and like sterner are like that it's a generative thing because I think, right, that's the whole the contrast or one of the contrasts in terms of Deleuze and Guattari and and desire is like it's a productive force it's different it's not this negative but like i think what lacan is saying is the negative is productive it is constitutive and i even felt like in some aspects i'm probably like totally off but i thought some of the quotes where deleuze is talking about difference and repetition it reminded me a little bit of almost like a like death drive to some degree but i don't know maybe i'm just full of shit there no in part two he'll he'll talk about the three machines and three machines chapter he'll talk about the machine of death and catastrophe and he'll bring up death drive and Freud a little bit so so we can uh, was so sounding you know, a little, you're, you're not off base yeah he was sounding a little bit lacanian in some of the in proust and signs a bit I, I felt here and there 
Yeah. I also saw like shades of uh, shades of Heidegger too. Like there was one particular quote. That's that's actually very interesting. Are you talking about Guattari or are you talking about Deleuze? I'm talking about Deleuze more so. Okay, yeah. I'm looking at a uh, bibliography. Uh-huh. And so like the first edition of Proust and Science comes out in 64 and then I guess he revises it back in 76. Are, are those two different editions? Uh, those yes. Two different editions exist separately in English? No, no. So um, when Richard Howard translated Proust and Science, he, he translated the complete text. Okay. Yeah, uh, I don't believe there's a, a, a previous version, as far as I know. I do like that very early on, around that those pages, he already introduces us to the um, Proust challenges the classical image of philosophical thought, right? That it's built on some sort of goodwill uh, of the thinker. And so he's already kind of announcing some of the themes that we'll find in the repetition. Listen and start. Time lost and time regained. But more precisely, but more, yeah, but more precisely, it is convenient to distinguish four structures of time, each having its truth. This is because lost time is not only passing time, which alters beings and annihilates what once was, it is also the time one wastes. Why must one waste one's time? Be worldly, be in love rather than working and creating a work of art. And time regained is, first of all, a time recovered at the heart of time lost which gives us an image of eternity, but is also an absolute original time, an actual eternity that is affirmed in art. Each kind of sign has a line of privileged time that corresponds to it. But there is also the pluralism that multiplies the combinations. Each kind of sign participates in several lines of time. Each line of time mingles several kinds of signs. Yeah, it's it's always, I mean, that's that, that reminds me, I mean, it's, it's not the same thing at all, but it reminds me of like the geology of morals when they talk about the strata and the epistrata and the parastrata. There's all, there's, you know, there's always, there's always folds. There's always this, there's always these transversals, right? I mean, he takes, he even has a little footnote in part two, when he starts using the term, where he he credits Guattari with introducing him to that notion of transversal. So I think that would be a maybe a quicker way to kind of say that the four the four signs, the four levels, and and they're they they're they're all transversal, which is why you can't just create art without you know. I mean, the, there's a cliche phrase: "Art imitates life, life imitates art, whatever." Right? But I think I think for Deleuze, he would he wouldn't agree with necessarily the the notion of imitation going on. It's not about an imitation, right? It is about an apprenticeship. It is about learning. It is about becoming sensitive to these different multiplicities of signs and their and their sort of cash. What about the in the in context of the mimetic? So I was wondering to like difference in repetition as far as we discussed this like on on the Acid Horizon recording that we did, mm-hmm. but like the sort of seriality of the relationships construct the new like as the new love like the new lover. It's almost like this Bergsonian kind of approach to to um, to love or attraction or whatever the case may be. Is like all these past loves are sort of like getting you bringing those. Sort of, you know, like you do to any text, it's like your experience with other texts mm-hmm. are sort of constitutive of how you view a new lover. No, this is good. Or object I mean, or what, whatever this, the case may be. I, mean, I think this is in the, I which chapter it is. He has a great little footnote about the communication between not just among artists, but among works of art. Yeah, so he uses the term communication and he even has this little footnote. He talks about how Proust would have read Leibniz, even if only in yeah, school. Yeah. Um, and he says, 
Uh, there's a communication of a work with a public, communication between two works by one author, and then communication between different artists. Right? The how Proust kind of shows these three different communications, and they're all you know, superimposed, and they set off on each other. And I think that that's why Deleuze, through Proust, is able to kind of put art at the at the top, because there's something he's trying to do. He's trying to see in Proust this inversion of Plato, right? So when we get to the level of the sensory science, he says, not to disparage them, but he says, like, even if they bring, they bring this intense joy, they force us to think, they have this obligation upon us, and then they reveal sort of this high, that they already incarnate essences and point to a fourth level of art, right? And that for him the only thing wrong with the sensual signs and their potential for failure is that they are material. So when he talks about art and ideal essences with Proust, he, he's really putting forth his theory of the virtual and how yeah. the virtual and the material, and, and of course he gets into this difficult petition and how the virtual can't be thought of uh, in, in terms of potential because potential already implies a kind of opposition to reality or you know, and so for him, the, the virtual and actual here is 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 sort of virtual material, and that art, he'll say in his philosophy, you know, art exhibits the virtual or, and, and incarnates it in the material, uh, or vice versa, which is which That's is pretty interesting. Yeah, which is why I think, but but again, Plato's obviously easy. If you're going to take the line of art and aesthetics against Plato, you're always going to have a punching bag, right? Just just think of like the poets being cast out of the Republic. Yeah, because in this chunk, he talks about essence as being the enveloping character of uh, of essence as being the the ground that structures difference from which um, like the identity components will come forth from like it's on the page but what I got from this whole this whole section was like a it's sort of like a preface to everything that he goes on to mm -hmm. discuss like in, in difference and repetition and then like the later cinema it's like yeah. a nice microcosm yeah. of all of these concepts so like, a, like a nice introductory yes. sort of text to I thought so too. Yeah. I like that he, he puts Proust on the level of of a philosopher as well. There's something important about that, right? I mean, Deleuze is always writing these monographs about these philosophers and yeah. Proust is this artist that forces him to say, well, art is higher than philosophy uh, which, you know, he, he lays that out his own way. I know in what is philosophy there'll be there won't be necessarily a hierarchy, but I think he has to he has to go there to cast doubt upon right. the classical image of thought. And that yeah. Proust, if he's if he's a Platonist, he's he's in a, he's he's a Platonist in a very modern sense, in a very in a very sense that that causes us to rethink Platonism and forces us to rethink time too, and and to rethink reminiscence and how reminiscence isn't this sort of strange otherworldly journey. I mean, it happens in this life. Because I, I do think that, like, Deleuze, too, is bringing his reflections on not just Hume and, and the question of, of the status of relations being external to the terms, but also uh, Nietzsche. There's a lot of Nietzsche in here. He's just not saying his name. Yeah. But then, of course, Spinoza, he finds in, 
and Proust's conceptualization, I'll say, but his his rendering of the sensuous sign, you can see already in those three movements, the joy, the forced obligation to think, and then, you know, the revelation, that being a kind of very Spinozist, I mean, it's, it's affirmationism at, at large, right? And I know Deleuze sometimes gets, that, that's like redundant to talk about an affirmation of Deleuze, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's great that he, and to, to give Guattari credit too, I think that they both write on Proust in very singular ways, even if they influence each other. Right, and their readings of Proust. Yeah. You know, Guattari has a footnote about how he would have to cite Proust and signs on every page. I think that's in that yeah. chapter, right? Yeah, it is. And then, and then Deleuze, in the second part, the one that he wrote after meeting Guattari, he has that little nod that, hey, Guattari came up with the, the notion of transversality. I assume that the essay he points to is included in uh, Psychoanalysis and Transversality, but you guys that have a physical copy would have to... Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, I have it. Deleuze wrote the introduction to that too in '72. So, and I know that's on our list to do next, right, guys? I mean, that's going to be that's, that's going to be pretty cool. That's yeah. a that one is much more. You know, let me make this about me. I can that no, one's no, no, much please. more about much more in my wheelhouse. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm looking. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Like young Lacanian. That's yeah. Yep. They call them young Lacan around. Uh, <laughs> did they really? And they did. Or they ah, call them funny. Lacan or Laborde's Lacan, something like that. You got mm. all of Lacan's. They call Guattari young Lacan. Is that is that the joke? Or little little Lacan, little or something Lacan. like little that. Little Lacan. <laughs> yeah. <actually>. Um, <laughs> well, that implies young because they're. It's not like exactly. Lacan's. Of, yeah. Yeah. I, I thought that was exactly. funny. Like I didn't even. I wasn't even thinking that level with the whole like you know my display name young Lacanian. No, that's yeah. great. I mean, you, you said I, I assumed you were speaking the truth when you. I think you were playing the Rosa. I was being cagey. Oh, oh yeah. Okay, yeah. When you, when I you see say, what you're saying. Yeah. Or was it was it somebody else who was asking about? Yeah, it was. Um, I think it was her. He said to them that Guattari is, is your your main like influence. And, oh yeah, who I my personality most. No, maybe that was to maybe that was to what's his face. The I don't know his real name, but I think his screen name is Nam underscore philosophy. Am I wrong? I don't. Maybe, I don't maybe, maybe he. Yeah, and I, he guessed for me Walter Kaufman, which I think is <laughs> great because, you know, he's a translator and he translated my favorite philosophy. Which and he's, he's a great translator as far as I've yeah, heard. I, I think he's, yeah. I think his translations are, are, are great. And, but Nietzsche's, you know, to, what's, what's great about Nietzsche is the, he really, unlike, you know, Cotton Hegel, who I think more or less stick to an everyday German besides certain, conceptual formations. Nietzsche was a, was very much more, Oh, I think, you know, you can, you can point to his, his interest in language with the philology um, studies, but I mean, he, he himself talks about, and we can talk about accelerationism here, right? Nietzsche, I think it'd be like a Niebel talks about how German is this like slow, like plodding kind of Andante. He says it's sickly. Yeah. (laughs) And, and he, but he, he'll use the, he'll use musical like, um, rhythm terms for it. He wants yep. to. He wants to write in Italian because it's allegrissimo, right? It's like this. Mm-hmm. So, so Twilight or not Twilight? What's the first one? Uh, Birth of Tragedy. Birth of Tragedy constantly yeah. talks about writing at a tempo. That's interesting. And, that's good. You know that that's a book about art, so I guess it fits mm-hmm. right in with what we're talking about. And I guess you make that connection with saying it's there's a lot of Nietzsche and Proust here with Deleuze and that, you know, I think Nietzsche is saying the same thing that he's kind of, you know, Nietzsche is kind of an anti-philosopher 
whether right. they want to pick on that or not. And he's yeah. basically saying art is the greatest expression. Um, yeah. And that uh, philosophy uh, is kind of sick. Yeah. yeah. Existence has to be justified aesthetically. Yeah. He calls himself a psychologist a lot of the time. He does. And yeah. part of this too, I think is like his, it's, it has to be, you know, instead of writing in German, he wants to write in French or Italian. Yeah. Instead of being German, he wants to claim or, Maybe Polish. He, he, maybe he believes to be to be Polish, right? And that that kind of maybe that, maybe that's a kind of nomadism. You know, we could we could throw out a bunch of terms for it. But I was I guess I was saying that Kaufman does a great job. I think he does a good job of of rendering Nietzsche aesthetically, but it doesn't preclude the possibility of. I mean, there there are dozens of different translators. I know the main two are the the main two are Kaufman and Hollingdale, but there there are a lot of. There's, there's a he has that vastness that he can be captured and recaptured. Something that I think is that you see a lot in, for example, like Homer. I may have yeah. told you this too. Think of all the different translations of Homer of the Odyssey and the Iliad there are, including like all the way back to, but even beyond. But I'm taking back to like the 18th century with Alexander Pope, who translates Homer in a kind of hacky way and loses a lot of meaning, but he translates him into iambic pentameter, who wrote couplets rhyming couplets, which, you know, is a total artificial formal construct, but that kind of that kind of pressure, right, to encapsulate these great stories into the most like English or the most like worn out English form is really does say something about Pope's genius, in my opinion. Even even if like he he became kind of a hack at the end of his life. That it's like a, there's like something beautiful in it. Now I'm like talking about translators and translations, so yeah. And it is the question of language that people always talk about with, uh, it, as you know, you know, did we capture the essence of the writer and the thought and yep. does the language mutilate the ideas? And, I mean, that is, I think, Watari's gist through most of his work, how much language mutilates thought and affect. So I would ask you, DC, if you don't mind, just to keep on this before we move on. Is there something about the role of language and how the analyst traditionally in a kind of, and I say traditionally, I mean, in a kind of classical image of thought and the kind that Guattari is, you know, from the very beginning of the machine of unconscious, he's, he's criticizing with its, you know, it's it, psychoanalysis needs to seem scientific. So it like latches onto linguistics, this like, you know, this Persian feel that has an air, an aura on, of, of scientificity. Is there something about the, analyst's role as a translator that like I think for Guattari then he wants us to be not just like verbal translators I'm asking a leading question I'm wondering <laughs> your, your thought I guess yeah you know what comes to mind I was in a class once and someone was talking about a patient and I won't give too many details because that's not supposed to be uh, yeah. under wraps but something of just how language constantly leads us astray. The patient was talking about Taekwondo okay. and then someone in the class was like, does he have a fetish for Asian people or something oh, like God. that? And I was like, guys, Taekwondo is fucking Brazilian. <laughs> like it's not even so like the language totally got these people off on, uh, I see. It's like a, it's like a red herring or, or like, like a, a false, red herring. Yeah. It's, it was like a false path. Yeah. And and not only is Taekwondo, right? You're looking it up. Make sure I'm correct. It's Brazilian, right? It's not even it's, Japanese. I'm pretty sure it's Korean. I, I thought it's it was Korean. Korean. I thought it's it was Korean. Korean. What's the Brazilian one? That's uh, uh, Jiu-Jitsu. Well, there, there, there is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, yeah. Um, yeah, Taekwondo is a Korean martial art. 
But that's okay. I mean, your point still stands. Yeah. Go on, go on. Just how language, if you get stuck on meanings, really Mm -hmm. leads you completely astray, which is why Deleuze and Guattari refer to Lacan as the first schizoanalyst, which Nick Nick Land kind of jumps on and says that's that's stupid in one of his texts. But Guattari is somewhat right because uh, Lacan's whole spiel, for the most part, is language is what you use to hide people. So the analyst has to figure out what is this person trying to hide from me when they tell me all these stories. Right. So that's what a sign is. And that's why Lacan says the signifier is where it is. And at the same time, isn't, or that confusing thing he has is that when someone shares with you a story, they tell you a lot about what they're not telling you. They leave you like a negative imprint. Andre Green talks about the work of the negative and he talks about these cave paintings where it's just someone's handprint, like some caveman's handprint, and you don't see the hand, you just see the outline. I'm like, mm, oh, that's yes. what a symptom or a sign is. Well, it so, also seems like that your classmates were bringing in this strange, <laughs> it's not a prejudice necessarily, but it's a prejudice reading. Yeah. So, is that like so a worldly, where does that fit in like the context uh, of like, is I that mean, like a worldly sign? Yeah, totally. Taekwondo, you think, you think, oh, he's going like to read it. Yeah, that's just exactly. bullshit. That's so right. stupid. Like Taekwondo already is an art. It's a, it's yeah. a fighting form. It's, it's, it has aspects of dance, right? I mean, it's a, it's yeah. the body and movement. It's not some mental fixation, not necessarily. And you know, who knows how, if the patient we're, we're talking about Taekwondo, who knows what Taekwondo means for them? Right, exactly, I, I know that's exactly. a cliche, but no. it really is something true. You have to consider when you're actually doing good analysis with people. Right. It's like, I will off people use, I have a patient who constantly uses the word equation when talking about relationships with other people. Interesting. I, like I said, what does that word mean when you, when you use it, you know, try not to be mean. We try not no, to no, no. Let's, pick, but like, yeah. you know, and it turns out money mm-hmm. uh, is associated to guilt and okay. is associated to these early relationships this person had where they right. felt like they couldn't do enough. And no mm-hmm. matter what they did, they'd never be a good person. So now they use this kind of money <laughs> language to talk about relating to people. And it's like, if you don't unpack that and you just assume they're using it in like this literal way, you don't get at like any of their conflicts. You and don't you get don't, to help them. With the Liz and Guattari, as they show in both volumes. It's like a signifying chain, right? right. Well, they, 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 but they also talk about money as, as chain in terms of, of flows, right? Mm-hmm. So this is about this, this, this fear of, not being like abundant enough in terms mm. of in terms of flows and it but it but it but it but the black hole is money and that makes sense because we live in this fucked up you know capitalistic world yeah so like there's there's a lot to explore there and and you may i mean it makes sense that and you too also have to guard against overprivileging their definition exactly and i know that you do but that's that's part of that's that that's that's the becoming attentive to the analysis. I mean, we could we could use proofs and science here, you know, in that sense of, you know, we whether we use the four layers or not, and whether we ask ourselves is this a worldly sign, is this a deceptive sign, a sign of love, which could be a sign of transference, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, you know, this the sensual signs like the intense dreams or whatever it is that you know involuntarily summons up this 
like I, I'm sure Watery would be sensitive. Like if, uh, like in the in that in that last seminar I translated, the, the second one in, in the series, the drive, whatever. In the discussion, he one of the it seems one of his best students. I can't tell uh, is talking about like you know one day the announcement comes in and it's just like you could call it a manic state, but it's like is like super you know joyful. And, like, oh, and, and yeah, and so that is it's kind of like digging in there. It's like, was it a, was it a fucking you know tea cookie? Was it a Madeline? <laughs> right? Was it whatever? And I do think that like what I like is Proust and signs. Deleuze is like, hey, art is higher than philosophy, right? He's making this Nietzsche argument, you know, with Plato. But then Guattari is like, hey, it's not about psychoanalyzing or schizoanalyzing the search. That is wrongheaded from the beginning. The search itself is this schizoanalytic map. And he puts it on the level of science and says that like Proust and Joyce and Beckett, Kafka, was there, I'm sure he, he, he Proust, adds Joyce, the, Kafka, Beckett, yeah. He adds the ellipsis, meaning there are many more that could, it's a, obviously an inclusive destruction. They all, they are doing, they, they are actually producing this scientific experiment and, and it does work. Uh, so it's not just art. It's not, it's, Art is philosophy, but art is also science. I think you, you, you kind of see here where the foundations for describing philosophy, art, and science in their distinctions and what is philosophy is already laid out here in the independent readings of, of Proust. That kind of reminded me, I not necessarily here nor there, but I had, I had a post that I thought was, I don't know, one of my better ones. And it was like, I, it was a jeweler with his little like loop and he's like looking at a diamond and he's like, the post was uh, looking at signs with my little jeweler's loop and they're crystallized and he's got a little like magnifying glass. Is that the word for the, the little? Yeah. Yeah. I had to look loop? that up. I had no idea that's, what it was. That's, that's, that's great. Is it spelled like L-O-U-P-E? L-O-U-P-E. There you go. Alfonso, did you have any? I wanted to make sure. Did you have anything that you wanted to add in this? In this connection, because I know that you're like your study of your library, obviously, but your study of psychoanalysis is probably deeper than mine. And so, like, did you see, uh, well, like Coop, you know, said he saw a lot of Lacan and in, in, in some of our, uh, in like, at least in Deleuze reading. So, did you have, a, did you have anything to add? Uh, I, th- I think it just shows that it's important to take into, you know, signification is, is problematic in the social realm. Well, mm-hmm problematic it's functionally problematic and problematically functional <laughs> so in the, in, so in the sense that you know when we when we talk about language and you know how it's it's weird qualities and you know it, it can do so much and yet at the same time it confuses that same content um, you know when it comes to when it comes to sub- subjectivity and the specific use of language as a type of discourse, you know, one discourse among many different types of discourses between these immaterial signs that we that we throw around and then the material nonverbal actions that we also use that are their own discourse, you know, between all of these different types of aesthetic expressions. Um, you know, language is the one that is 
perhaps the most apparently transversal, maybe, I guess we could say, you know, it occupies and crosses over into a lot of different domains at the same time. So our focus on it in this particular way is not necessarily, uh, it's not an accident. You know, we, we discuss the problems of language in this way because um, it behaves a very specific way. So, you know, between Lacan, Deleuze, and Guattari, you know, in their discussions of signification, you know, they're, they're tapping into it in different ways. But I think between all of them, I think they all recognize that, you know, in their, as they, as they go on in their work and in their later years, they recognize that heterogeneity is something that is difficult for the subject or for subjectivity to grasp uh, in its fullness. So a lot of a lot of the work and a lot of this, the discussions are around trying to deal with the implications and the complications of the the singular subject in their limitedness, trying to deal with an environment that is extremely transversal so no i think that's great uh, i like that you brought up heterogeneity there's a because i was checking with howard's english and, and and honestly proofs and signs i think i i had the uh richard howard's still alive he's in his mid-90s now he's translated a lot of key figures more literature than like say philosophy like robert hurley those are like two of my favorite translators howard um chooses certain for example, he'll, you know, like Magdalene says in the French, when in the English Howard translates mind, it's always the word, you know, esprit in, in French. And like, I think that needs to be kept in mind, especially with this discussion of the work of art and, um, and this discussion of uh, the virtual and the actual, the virtual material. But there's a term that he translates as incongruous. And I'd have to, I'd have to find it or, you know, prove if you've got yeah, I've the got whole the, text. I have you the PDF can, up. Uh, yeah, if you what should like I search? If you can just control F and congruous, which is a fun way to say. Um, yeah, I love it. He is actually translating, and we have the word in English. What are you looking? Uh, what are you looking? What I uh, anti logos? I, I would have to look at the, the proofs and signs, but he, whenever he uses the word in Congress, Deleuze says heteroclite, and I like that word. It's, it's, word. It's, a, it's a less used word in English, but I think it captures more the nature of heterogeneous multiplicity, right? That that we'll see Deleuze and Guattari use a lot more. And I don't know if they if Deleuze keeps using that, that word heteroclite. And I don't know if he even gets that word from Proust. It's possible. Or, or that maybe Proust says it a number of times, and, and maybe that's why Deleuze uh, says it so much in, in at least this chapter, the Antinotus chapter. But I like that word heteroclite. Right? Yeah, and it does. It does describe assemblages. It describes the different ways that the you know the signs interact transversely, as you said. I have kind of a more like basic question, if if I may interject. Yeah. I was curious, like what what semiotics are for Deleuze and Guattari, and like individually, what is how do their definitions differ? Because when I when I think of semiotics, I think of what Deleuze is doing in Proust and Signs. To me, that's what I think of in terms of semiotics. So I feel like maybe at, at the very least, Guattari didn't quite have that same. Like it, he had a more specific, like technical definition for semiotics that was like more to do with a signifying. 
I, mean, I just think that Watery wants to make sure that uh, semiology and semiotics aren't. Oh yeah, okay. Are so that's the distinction. Are just conflated. I think because right. he because I'm not says, clear on that. Like I that I don't know. That's getting into the weeds. Of, well, no, 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 no. He, he he says in the introduction that he he introduces this distinction arbitrarily. Okay, in the, gotcha. in the same way that predicted that. I mean, um, I know we discussed it, but, but it's been um, a while. <laughs> no, no, but for him, semiology is. Is is more would be more what Roland Barthes doing? Okay, right, because that's and, what I, that's what I'm thinking of. I think yeah. as far as and, semiotics. But but you see with with Deleuze, he he's already straddling both, right? Yeah. Because if if Guattari says semiotics is is the a signifying the a grammatical, etc. I mean the the four levels of signs leading that culminating with ideal essences. But even with with even with the signs of worldliness, right? It's it's a for example, like he says that a certain gesture or certain greeting from one of the societies, like the Verderan societies, right. already is as dire, is as important to diagnose correctly as uh, certain symptoms from a diseased patient and that everything hangs in that balance. But it wouldn't necessarily just be a, a question of a linguistic signification, right? There's a, there are all sorts of other subtle uh, signs involved in them, be they empty or not, uh, that would come from faciality, uh, refrains, a certain timbre, yeah. a, a tone, a, um, you know what I mean? So it, and we don't necessarily have, I mean, he, I mean, I love how watching describe Swan go to the Verdurin Society for the first time. This is 235 where he says, at that time, salons functioned as, quote-unquote, initiation camps to the tribes of high society. Swan goes to Madame Verderin's salon, a little like an ethnologist who establishes contact with an unknown ethnic group. I do think he's thinking of, of the way Deleuze kind of describes some of that, too, how it was a sort of random series of events that got that, that, that introduced Swan to that, that group and, and how he at first, you know, doesn't, doesn't really know how to interpret these worldly signs, right? So that's what I think he means. That's what Gautier, I think, means by saying it's, it's kind of like a, he's like an ethnologist, right? He's, he's, he's getting briefed on the, on the, on what the signs produce more than mean, right? Because again, it's, it's not, I think that's why Deleuze and Guattari really do emphasize the work of art. It's not about what it means. It's about what it does, about what it produces. There's that, you know, um, what are the effects it produce? So if you merely stay on this, on the level of language, you're not able to create that, that transversality. Yeah. Which DC's example, like, yeah, perfectly mm -hmm. illustrates that, that concept, right? I think that connects well with Alfonso's comment about transversality, which is a really loaded concept, but... Yeah, it's, talk about transversality for me, because I have no idea what this is. Honestly... Well, you I know what the word <laughs> normally means, right? You know what it... You know what it transverse... Uh, you know what it denotes, but, but you mean conceptually. Yeah. So yeah, DC... I, honestly, I'd have to go back and... Situated or extending across something is transverse. So let's see. Transverse. Well, I mean, yeah. In, 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 connections. Right. In a natural language, it would be a diagonal, right? So it's... Um, but How spaces intersect. The opposite of tangency plays a role in general position. Yeah, for Proust, it's not about just spaces. It's Well, Deleuze has some beautiful words on this that are very Bergsonian, but he talks about the intersectionality of, of not just space and time, but the but the space of time and the time of space, whatever the fuck, right? You know, like he, 
and that's that's also true with like multiplicities and these other things. But DC, I, I did not mean to cut you off. Um, no, it's good. Uh, good context. I mean, I would have to go reread <laughs> the the earlier book by Guattari where he's really conceptualizing transversality, the text transversality and psychoanalysis. But I think just to talk like generally about it, Alfonso commented on like language and transversality. It just makes me think Guattari is kind of a secret Lacanian in this way, in that language is this thing that opens up space to actually mm-hmm. reach new ground and explore novel ideas. It, even though it's like this sort of castrating function, I think Guattari's whole project is repurposing language to do the opposite of what it's intended to do, which is kind of like the left accelerationist idea or Leninism. But, uh, this idea that language is supposed to represent things, but then you can use it for all kinds of crazy shit, and then it rips apart and cuts across in all these weird diagonal ways that you wouldn't expect. And then you're pulling together all kinds of disparate ideas, feelings, affects, in ways that you couldn't pull together if you didn't have language. Like pre-language, pre-linguistic humans, like if you're schizophrenic and your, your language capabilities don't develop, or autistic maybe, you, you, actually, you actually have a limited range of communication and feeling because in order to feel or, or know right. what affects you're experiencing, you have to have some language to reflect on yourself in that kind of feedback arc and then communicate to someone else and other. And then right. someone else has to act in a certain way and, you know, it really opens up this whole field. So the more language you get, the more you can play around with the, with the limits of human experience, the, the non-linguistic stuff, the non-human stuff. So I think that's what transversality is, is like when you cross over a threshold or a limit uh, in some sort of novel way, using the very limit itself. Uh, I know that sounds kind of obscure to this, but uh, I think, I don't know, run, someone run with it. I think I'm, there's some well, content in there. No, 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 I love this. I love this. I, and I'll, I'll say well, real quick, I think that's good that what Guattari would agree with all this. He just doesn't want us to think that language is the one and only tool and, 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 is, and is therefore like the best, is therefore like higher than other ways of semiotizing. I mean, that's the right. word he wants to use is, is semiotizing uh, instead of, you know, expressing in, in, in a normal sense. I mean, like Deleuze takes expression with Spinoza and, and turns it transcendently like on fire. But the Guattari, if we just consider linguistic ex- expression is all the whole of expression. I think Guattari wants us to be more sensitive in, in that and not to just privilege language. Because I think about that in the, in the context of the, the opening quote, and you, we already mentioned the bit about, about In Search of Lost Time, he says, it's a schizoanalytic monograph as such. Proust, Joyce, Kafka, Beckett are veritable specialists of, of hyper-deterritorialized mental objects, which that's a phrase I just, I think. You love that <laughs> phrase? I, I love that phrase. That is posting. That's like communication. I love it too how he says like here, like, and everyone could learn a lesson from it. Mm-hmm. It's very like he's showing a lot of his personality here. And I and think even, even this is like, if let's say Guattari was uh, was on Twitter, he this feels like this could be a post right here. This Proust story. Oh yeah, <laughs> we, we oh, yeah. learn a lesson from them, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I know that Guattari uses a lot of exclamation points in this book, especially in the <laughs> intro, and and that's more of a French thing than an English thing. Oh, okay, I I chose to uh, to keep those in because everyone who has an inkling of Guattari's personality can, can kind of that, that exclamation point does something. It, it is yeah. performative. It, 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 you know what I mean? He's an excitable He's, guy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> He's like, it's always exclamation part points and ellipses. Yeah. 
That's true. Those I love are... his ellipses. I read uh, mm-hmm. uh, the one analyst he really liked besides Lacan was Donald Winnicott. And I read Donald Winnicott's biography. And Winnicott was a, one of the few analysts who would like include lists in his essays and publish papers. He was a, he was a list guy. And Interesting. Atari loves lists. So yeah. yeah, he does. I have to, <laughs> you know, one of the, remind me a list, you know, well, of course, of course yeah. they, 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 they want us to con- us to conjure our own list. Too. Exactly. And so there is something nice about that. And one of the, uh, criteria for the epic, you know, in, as a genre is, is epic lists. You can see this in Homer very clearly, right? He right. sets the standard. You see these just, all these names, all this bullshit, you know, like, like the names, like he has a pulp, like page on ships and, and the names of, and, and but, but it's, but it's, it's, it's an index. That's it's an index. Atari loves that word. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, he does. Mm-hmm. And I think he, I think he means it both in, you know, I think he means it. He, he, he gears the index as being a particular sign for territoriality. So it's already kind of entwined with, the Luz Guattari's like love of what's his name? Uskul, right? Jakob von Uskul and his stuff about the Umwelt and the and the um, the Innenwelt and all this shit and how it, it marks a or it is the mark of a of a territory. But at the same time, he also is thinking of Purse and Purse's classifications of signs, which is why he keeps saying, like in our chapter, he criticizes Swan and how uh, for for this. He has this mechanism by which he turns faces into icons, right? And in, in a sense, in order to, for Guattari, he sees this as a sign of trying to eliminate semiotic asperities and lines of flight and these other things. It's, it's a kind of a, like a control thing uh, that Guattari thinks is, is indicative of why Swan fails in the end to either become artist or to uh, become the greatest art critic that he has all the tools to do it. He just falls in love with, with Odette and that involves, it, it shows how the, the faciality component starts to dominate over the refrain component, like the, the Bantuos of the phrase. And for contingent reasons, merely due to the, the work of art, the, the fiction that Proust has given us, that's a bad thing, first of all. But it's that the narrator is able to, to overcome that re-territorializing black hole of the face that uh, Swan succumbed to. And so that's that's when the narrator, as Squatry points out, right, we can even look at some of that, but, uh, you know, the refrain takes on a certain precedence. And it's, for Guattari, he's very charitable here. He's like, look, it's not that faciality is re-territorializing music's de-territorializing, even if music at its best is seems to be on that hyper deterritorialized, you know, line, uh, it's just that the artistic machine, the, the production of the work of art in this narrative, it, as Bruce lays it out, needs the refrain to be, to supersede the face, right? The music doesn't really need the face. Um, yeah. Not, not in any conventional sense. Want to hear a small aside on music? Please. Yeah, I actually thought, edit it yeah. out, Coop, if it's, no, if I it's think- too much. If if it's the one you mentioned, like the end of like with your notes at the end, I thought that was please very yeah. salient. Yeah. Well, this is or something. So <laughs> I'll self share, but we can share. I might publish that little note I did on my blog, and people can go read it. But 
One time, many years, I'm a musician, many years ago, while I was in analysis, I woke up, I had some sort of dream in my sleep, obviously, and I woke up and I could just not, I could not put language to this dream. It felt like a rhythm or a tone. And I remember the only sentence I could produce to make any sense of this dream was the sentence, music is sex. And that made no sense to me because it wasn't a sexual dream at all. Mm. Like I wasn't aroused. Right. I just could feel like it had something to do with body rhythm and tone and pitch. And then years later, I asked my analyst, I was like, you know, I had this dream once. I can't make sense of it. And the only association I have to it is music is sex. And she had no good interpretation, mm. which, you know... Or, you know, I asked for an interpretation. I said, what is your thoughts? I really can't associate much to this. But every time I reread this chapter in Machinic Unconscious, it all becomes clear because he talks about these vague, fuzzy aggregates, which is a concept they'll use in the Thousand Plateaus, but just how music is this intensity that can't mm-hmm. be reduced to language, and language only grasps part of it. Right. Um, and I thought, oh, that's my dream. I was dreaming... You know, and that's Freud. Early Freud is very much in line with all this stuff in that, like, I was, my body was undergoing some sort of process. And like Nietzsche and Freud talk about, the mind is just an attempt at translating the movements of the body that you don't right. have thoughts for. Something was going on in my body that I don't have language for. And it came out as this kind of infantile sentence, music is sex, which is, in a Lacanian sense, the most basic or even a Chomskyan sense, the most basic sentence, right? S with the arrow. Like, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. noun, verb, yeah, whatever, you know. Like, objective compliment. Yes, yeah. music is sex. There's no co- right. complicated. Or subjective compliment. Yeah. So I don't know what you guys make of that, but that's always stuck with me, and I will probably never have <laughs> more language. Like there's nothing more to analyze there, you know? That's what well, Lacan it, says too. When you get down to reality... There's nothing more to analyze. So I think that just to be quick and let uh, Coop and Alfonso respond, for me, it's like you could say 100,000 words on music. You could break it down into genres. You could talk about whatever, the different notes, scales, yada, yada. If you haven't heard music, that, that doesn't even mean shit to you. Same right. with like having sex. Yeah, you can like diagram it. You have pictures, you have, you have videos, you have... You know, sexology, you have all the different work that like Kinsey did. And, uh, and of course, the works of Floyd Lacan, et cetera. But until you've had sex, especially, I mean, even more so for a woman whose hymen is broken, unless it's not intact by the time. And a lot of times it is broken before sexual activity, but not always until you've had sex. And not just it, it's not just a physiological thing. Right. Obviously. Right. It, it, it entails a lot. I mean, I lost my virginity when I was around my 13th birthday. And that, that kind of, you know, that kind of like fucked me up emotionally for a couple of years. But everybody has those teenage years that are fucked up emotionally. And I guess that that's the thing, right? All the different consequences, including the possibility of creating new life. I mean, that you can't, you can, you can, you can use words to talk about it. But until you have those experiences, um, that's all it is, right? It's yeah. just. They're, they're emergent emergent qualities that's like the uh the fancy philosophical stuff that an assemblage is i think i have some book on delanda or by delanda on the assemblage that says mm-hmm. it's just talking about emergent qualities mm-hmm. you can put all the language you want to it but it doesn't create the experience obviously and that's that's like churchland's stuff right with epiphenomenalism and all that just about emergence and i know this got a whole kind of 20th century storied history. But uh, yeah, Coop, 
Alfonso. Yeah, Go ahead, Alfonso. Alfonso. Go ahead, Alfonso. I know you're a musician, Alfonso, right? Yeah, um, I haven't I haven't played guitar since 2014. 2014, I, I cut everything off. But um, yeah, man, I think your dream speaks to you know definitely the the complementarity of the arts and you know, perhaps their transversal character, the domains that they they overlap and cross into, but they are not one another. So in order, you want to experience a a dance ballet performance art. Um, experience, then you have to do that. You're not going to get music per se out of that. You're going to have to, if you want music, then you need to listen to music. You're not going to get the fine arts painting out of that. So um, all of these different types of aesthetic expressions, if we're going to limit it to the arts, then experience is extremely important. You know, again, you can use the writing to cross over yes. to all of these domains and write about them, speak about the experiences and describe how they function and work, but it's not going to be the same thing as the experience. You have to, once you have the experience, you have something, you have a singular event that you, that is internalized that you can further develop into words, but um, it won't be the same. The inner experience is something on its own. And you know, maybe perhaps to bring that back to what Deleuze is saying in this first part, you know, the essence and the, what does he say? He says something about metaphor, which is the link between between the essence and, and the... Uh, Control F metaphor. <laughs> Yeah, my <laughs> no, he's but he's yeah. he's running the show. He, and Proust and signs, right? Yeah, I, I think yeah, that's what he said. Yeah, somewhere in there he talks about style as a, I think, okay, um, a metaphor for something. And then the metaphors, uh, the metaphor of the open boxes or the sealed vessels. That's one example. Is there another? The vegetable like metaphor, transsexuality as the ultimate level of the Proustian theory and its relation with the practice of partitioning. Not only is vegetal metaphor illuminated, but also becomes quite grotesque. I wish I'd written about okay. Which is to say that style is essentially metaphor, but metaphor is essentially metamorphosis and indicates the two objects exchange their determinations, exchange even names that designate them, and the new medium that confers common quality upon them. So music is sex, but it's, <laughs> it's not metaphor, it's metamorphosis. Uh, that's, I like that. I mean, I think that's why, you know, you have, you have these shifts. I mean, like in the shaker conscious, he has a, has a footnote about cage. Is it John cage and all the different, yeah. yeah the very experimental music that oh, you can call it abstract music. Uh, we have all, we can think of all kinds of different genres today too, like the introduction of noise or as I, as I try to talk about, um, I never wrote about this, but like with the deterritorialization of the voice into the screaming vox, yeah, right. So you have clean vox and, and scream vox or harsh vox. Sometimes you call it. I'm I'm going to try to watch a read since that's what we're supposed to be talking about. Or, <laughs> uh, it's it's in. He says well, we have been talking about it, obviously, but um, this is page. 233 on uh, Michigan Conscious, where he is talking about, he says, for example, that Proust likens Vontuil, Guattari is going to talk about Vontuil as a little phrase, the whole book. Deleuze mentions it several times in very good ways, too, but uh, Vontuil, this, this fictional um He attempted musician. to analyze the material expression of Vontuil's little phrase. Well, I'm looking uh, at page 233. 
So at the very I'm bottom, sorry. at the very bottom, he says it should be remembered that the inaugural event of his of his work has been the sports drum promenading Palmbray, during which he has managed to go to the end of his impression for the first time. That footnote, he says uh, that this is what he means by the verb semiotize, to go to the end of the impression. And I think that that's quite possibly a way of thinking of Deleuze's apprenticeship and thinking of why the four levels are needed, why you need you need worldly love, you need, or you need worldly science, love science, sensory science, and then all of that can get us to the end, which we only know once we have it, to look back at from from the viewpoint of the work of art, it illuminates everything in this like almost a kind of dark precursor way, right? Mm-hmm. It's 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 able to give us the key or it's able to, to to hone our experience, to hone our apprenticeship of signs, and it takes it to the end of the uh, of our impression. We go all the way to the end. I mean I said in the other uh, recording we did Coop, but it's it, this is very much Deleuze's event where in a first time, we're not equal to the event, and, and we have to become equal to the event in a second time. And it's only with that that we then see that we were kind of sort of predestined to become equal to it, which is, he mentions, um, in logic of sense, he mentions kind of an obscure poet novelist. I forget his name, I'll look at it later, but he talks about the wound we were, we were born to bear, and we were, we were like born for this this wound. And I think that that's, if we then take that notion of semiotize, I mean, for Guachari, if we combine them with what Deleuze is telling us, that the search is narrating, uh, machinically, like, revealing uh, what apprenticeship, what learning, true learning goes through. And it's it's for us to be able to semiotize in the broadest sense, but also in the most intense sense. And I think that that's where Guachari says, well, scientists don't have the minds for, for it to see literature as performing experiments in, in a very similar sense, in a very novel sense as scientists perform. And that science. Well, right. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, Cienzia, or Cienzia, I have to look that up. Again, but that, that's all, that's, I think that's, again, why boys is, and, and each are, are privileged art in this way, such that we can then enrich and, and enliven all the other, all the other types of thoughts. Yeah, language is a tool so that we can just do more stuff. We're not, Nietzsche always talks. Mm-hmm. Nietzsche says, uh, "Man becomes ill when when the means to the end they take the means to an end as the end itself." You know, and I was reading that in Will to Power, and I circled that and wrote psychoanalysis. These people, some of my colleagues, they want to see people for like 40 years and think, oh, we can't terminate yet. I'm like, Jesus Christ, we're supposed to be helping people live. Right. You know, and that, that was Guattari's whole thing too. It's like, and that's the whole point of language. I love it when in A Thousand Plateaus, Deleuze and Guattari say like, I think they're riffing on Hume, but they say like, we too will say the sun uh, rises and sets, even though we know it's only a figure of speech. Right. And that they're like, huge. don't worry guys, we're not, we're not uh, re-invoking language but we've got to use language to critique language because sure. there's no other way of doing it. So. Uh, but you participate in society. You participate <laughs> exactly. in language. I, yeah. Uh, you don't I, like capitalism, yet you enjoy very good. Starbucks. Right. Yeah. Good, sir. I mean, can I, mean, I do it, both? It's, um, I think that, and, and, and do you, uh, it's in, uh, in Chaos in the Gangs of New York, he says, 
he likens the interminable, terminable question of psychoanalysis with moving opiate addicted yeah. uh, patients onto methadone. Yeah. And his point being, well, you've just you just basically taken away the high, but kept the addiction and actually enforced it, as we know, or at least as is reported, uh, alleged methadone is more addictive physically. That's at least right, that, right. and you can measure that, I guess, by the, the withdrawal symptoms, right? So, and so Guattari is like, look, that's not the right way to do it, guys. It's not good. First of all, it's like good mental health to just, as you said, what, 40 years. I think that for Guattari, yeah, analysis should not become this, we add on to a client's list. Right? Yeah. And we keep a Rolodex and, and are just trying to, you know, I do think that, that for him, there's there has to be an endpoint, and that also allows us a, a space of freedom for that individual to, if they wish, they can potentially look for another analyst. Because I always wondered, you know, about where certain people are in their lives with the events that they've encountered, with whatever particularities they've accumulated, that that their path makes them vibe and jive more with with a certain either an, analytic figure or more broadly, like a, a school of approach. You know, right. I, I talk about my, my wife's father, who's a, a Jungian behaviorist. And I mean this in a very strange way. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know whether he's misunderstanding Jung or like the followers of B.F. Skinner, but, but he, he, he did have a very, he doesn't like to talk too much about what he does. He's kind of like UDC, uh, doesn't really want to spoil it. So he does take it seriously. But one of the things he said about, he had a very Guattarian moment where he was like, where he just, if someone was bullshitting him, he would not, not pick up a book. I think he, he said he would pick up a book and start reading. Or was that what Guattari did? Guattari no, would do that. He said he would do something similar where he would just kind of create a, a severance and not necessarily punish the other, but make the other person know that they are wasting his time. I do think he sees that and he interprets what he does in the lens of behaviorism, uh, trying to trying to affect behaviors, he has worked with like you know uh, what the law would call like juvenile delinquents before. Yeah, uh, and he's had that's been one of his, but that's not the only type of clientele he has. But uh, the Jung part, I think, is because he's a fucking hippie, right? <laughs> and so and so he sees he sees development in the situation in that lens. And he's not a religious person, so he doesn't necessarily like. He's not necessarily trying to get them to join a cult. I mean, he's not handing out flyers, whether or not they they ripen themselves or need that development. And I mean, cult in the widest sense too, because you know Christians might want to say that all the different sects are. I mean, it's all one cult. <laughs> it, cult, like most basic definition, is just kind of like a, a gathering of individuals who believe. Right. So that was a long winded thing, but I, I just wanted to share that with you, DC, about my father. His name's Luke, Luke Lukens. I'm going to ruin his trans words. Uh, but Luke Lukens, how about that name? Right. And, and Lukens in German is like etymologically, it's just basically blank, which I think blank. is blank. Yeah. It's, it's kind of the empty square, right? It's, it's the empty signifier. I think I found it. This is why I don't talk about my, <laughs> my real name. I found Luke Lukens therapy.com. Oh no, he's he has his own Maybe private he has his own private thing and he's basically yeah. he's basically emeritus. He's 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 more or less able to retire whenever he wants. No, I was gonna say it's interesting what you mentioned about uh what he would do in, in picking up a book uh to create a sort of disturbance in the um in the event. Right. It sounds 
it functions, sounds like it functions very similar to uh, Lacan's uh, short session. Yeah. Uh, the scansion, you know, creating a creating an abrupt moment um, in the moment of analysis and unexpected could potentially bring forth something out of the analysis that would not have come otherwise. So I like that. Like a radical sign, time signature change. And like, I listen, <laughs> to, I listen to a lot of metal um, and, and some of it's math metal, or you could call it that because I love, of that. I love math core. Yeah. There you go. Math core is good too. Um, you know, it all depends. I, I <laughs> And then there's this uh, subgenre called like Gent, and I listen to Vail oh, Maya. Do you, oh. you guys like that? I like their first two albums, Phil. Yeah, yeah. The Common Man's Collapse and um, yeah, basically. Common Man's Collapse and then there were, they had a very poorly produced EP before that that was actually really good that I have that's rare. But anyways. It's, it's kind of like a remake though. The Common Man's Collapse kind of like. There, but, there but anyway. You're right. Yeah, yeah y'all, y'all know what I'm talking about. But Coop, just to, just to clue you in, um, keep you in the conversation, it's that... I, I think of other, there's another band, it's a French band called Gojira, right? Which is the French way of saying Godzilla. They just seamlessly kind of cut, they break uh, with a, you know, either it's 4 4 or whatever. Alphonse would be able to tell me. Uh, but you know what I mean? I mean, I like I like Tool and they often, yeah, that's Tool does their too. bread and butter is to yeah. switch. Polyrhythms. Yeah. And I think that there's something, if we're going to stick with, when we were talking about Bruce, we have to talk about music. Right? Yeah. We're not just talking about literature here. And so, you know, I, I think that it's the way that the Sonata and the Septet communicate for Deleuze, right? It's, it's this, these two mathematics and, and, and music communicating in a way such as to create new genres when taken to the limit, right? Again, it's like what a, what a body of music can do, um, so to speak. There's something really interesting in that. And, and I think that for, Watch Rewa, he focuses on what he already shows in this first chapter. He's, he's going to play off faciality and refrain. And we already know that refrain's the baby face, and it's like it's going to lead the narrator to succeed in the end, but it, it doesn't have, but like us unlocking and, and explicating the essences of art, it's not immediately on its face. I mean, we can even say this in Hegelian ways about mediation and such, but, uh, that's a totally different question, right? We'll leave that aside. Proust and, and is a hate is a game. Um, you know, it's but I think that for Watchery, he wants to play off these two. This is why he spent those chapters talking about faciality. I think it puts back in perspective the whole reading we've done. All the legwork is out of the way, and now we just have to we get to play with some of the some of the little tools that Watchery has wanted to like, set up for us. What do we think is he titles chapter eight? Swan's love is semiotic collapse. Collapse into black hole. Black hole. Collapse, collapse is a yeah. It's a it's a short hand for the black hole um, and how Watcher is using it. And as we, as you guys said really early on in the episode, you know the black hole potentially has these productive effects. It produces something whether whether or not we we immediately say it's a negation, but like. There are these, I, I, I retweeted the beautiful photo of a black hole. It might be Cygnus One. I'm not sure. It's eating a star. You can kind of like see the light and the energy and the matter. Not just the artist's rendering, right? We, we have like 
this is the role of the cinema and the, and the photo and all that. We have photos just beautifully magnified. And and Deleuze in, in the second half of Proust and Science says that instead of a m- microscope, Proust always thinks of the work of art, or at least the search itself, maybe not all works of art, but the search itself as using a telescope. And that it's telescoping in on certain you know, whether it be the refrain or the face or whatever different levels of sign, he's looking at these different universes and allowing us to then take the search as a machine and, and read within ourselves and see what effects occur. And he even says, like, almost like an analyst would, I think DC could say something maybe, but he's like, hey, and if the search doesn't produce those effects, you know, find another machine, keep searching. You know, it's not, it's not just about ending with his search and saying it's done. But there's, there are other effects to be elicited. Right. That's desire. Mm-hmm. Yes. No, I, I think that, I think he hit upon it. I mean, that's the part that he wrote in 72. So, or he published in 73. Or, Alfonso, you said maybe 76. It's, and, and it's after Antiochus, right? And so, it's like this interesting little, I think it helps us to think also more clearly about the Kafka book, the minor literature that they wrote together, yeah. sort of as an interstice between the two volumes of Capitalism and Schizophrenia. And um, you see it already in the Machine of the Conscious too, which probably is a fallout of their work together on the, the Kafka book, where he juxtaposes Proust and Kafka and how they they accelerate, decelerate time, etc. And he specifically says Kafka does that with his his penchant. But I think that for Proust, Deleuze argues very. You don't see this in Guattari, but he's probably already thinking it. But with, yeah, with, with Proust, he's using a telescope. So there's something um, something interesting about the black hole going on, and maybe that's another reason why Guattari is using that is precisely because of Proust describing these astronomic distances that traverse space without interval, right? He talks about Deleuze is something like a suffering as a sun, right? That's because it's raised traverse all, all this distance without kind of, you know, you're not going to encounter Zeno's paradox, right? With going by halves. It's all, it's all sort of imminently traversed at once. And I, I, I do think that's, it's like very important. So if transversality occurs, you know, the speed of light is precisely the black hole that can fuck that up and cause it to collapse. I'm kind of curious what you think about. So there's this quote, page 236. It's a little bit. It says, uh, for its part, the refrain never ceases to go beyond itself, transversalize itself, and it will lead the narrator to carry out a veritable and durable micro-political mutation. Ooh, that's good. Which I was, I don't know. Yeah, he says, if you go if you go up just a little bit further, I, I don't know if you want to pull up the, the page. Yeah, pull up. He's, he's, he's juxtaposing faciality and refrain for Swan and the narrator, which um two great oppositions. And it's interesting, too, that Swan is mostly confined to the first volume in English that's translated Swan's way. And then... The story about the narrator's development is six times longer. So Swan is almost, it's definitely the spoil. He's definitely put forth as what not to do or how shit goes wrong. And I think that's why in a thousand plateaus, they always talk about, you know, either building a body with an organs or becoming or going down lines of flight. 
there's always this risk. And the black hole, I think, is again in a different register in that sense, another catchword of catchphrase for that warning, that caveat that they're sort of insisting upon. But yeah, with with Swan, it's it can it has this there there is this potential with Swan. Swan could have succeeded. But what is it what happens? He says they open up obsessive and repressive re-territorializations. He's talking about the, the refrain in the in faciality. Swan's the first one in the before the narrator. He uh, he's the first one to be affected by Bonfield's little phrase, and it kind of predestines him to a certain extent or prepares him for his meeting with Odette, who's the one that falls in love with him, not the other way around. But then you know she starts to take shape because of because that's. Um, you know, Deleuze will make it about the individuation of the other. That's the that's that's falling in love. You start to Albertine starts to discernibleize herself. That's what Guattari would say. Odette discernibleized herself, became significant in Swan's world, but he thinks of her face as being one and the same, or being closely associated with Sephora as Guattari points out right this this little in this little Botticelli fresco because that's what he does with faces he he tries to compartmentalize them like in a sealed box or a sealed vessel right but but at the end he becomes obsessed he the face proves too powerful or faciality that whole machine that he uses as though it were a benefit it's a double-edged sword it causes him to to stumble and therefore the Bonson's little phrase doesn't isn't able to go to the end of its impression, right? It's, it's not able to, you know, provide the deterritorialization to get him out of that black hole. Because that's another way to think of the black holes in relation to de and deterritorialization that, you know, in the absolute sense, absolute deterritorialization is kind of, I think for someone like Althusser, the, the goal of every ideological state apparatus. It's interesting. The refrain or the chorus and music, it, uh, in a sense, it does not go beyond itself because it's a point of return. But at the same time, it prefaces something right. that, something different that's going to come after that. So in reference to what you were saying, Taylor, is that, is that parallel with, with, uh, what Swan is doing in novelistically? Yeah. So Swan, yeah, you're, I, I see that. Um, I think that, you know, Swan is a, he's an extraordinary type, but he succumbs to very ordinary failures. And so in that sense, he's a chorus of a mediocre man, right? He's, there's always different, but it's the same. And we can see that in, in all kinds of other realms, especially in cinema and literature. Or in philosophy, especially with you know with someone like either with Plato's mixed types or Nietzsche's, you know, even mentioned his, you know, his his way of okay to back up a little bit. I think that Proust shows it's not enough for someone like Swan, who is as Guattari says very clearly here in, in the chapter we read that that well, like Swan is fucking cool as shit. He's he's totally hip with the times. He knows what's going on in the art world. He's 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 in the know. He's a fucking, if not full-blown celebrity, he has a kind of celebrity status. And 
he has everything it takes to be like one of the elite in in the in the high world of art and or high world the high society whatever the fuck right because of his attentiveness to art not just to art but to like the the, the trends and the fashions and he's he is therefore the best candidate to succeed he has all is everything he needs and love fucks him up his passionate love fucks him up his love for that he gets and as i said she falls in love with him first even though we only find this out much much later in the novel which is a kind of trick of temporality and whether or not we believe her is, is another thing because she tells us to the narrator much later but you know he's so he falls in love with the debt and gosh i marked out two beautiful pages by the in Page 12 and 13, but he says, uh, uh, no, let me say that later. He says, he says to fall in love is to individualize someone based on the signs they emit, based on the signs they get out. Yeah. So that's the fall in love. So he falls in love with Odette, and what he falls in love with mostly is her faciality traits. And, and Proust that makes this clear. Um, and that's why his, even though he tries to, continue with this even though he kind of continues with this mechanism he's already developed to like associate someone's face with a with a face from a famous painting this is a very cerebral kind of beautiful way of doing things but that there's a there's a kind of that machine normally functions until he falls in love and then when he falls in love with the debt then we get to that second level of the uh, of the deceptive signs of love where um, if to fall in love is to individualize someone based on the signs they, they give out, so love is something different than it is. That's right. Say it again. To explicate and develop a world. I think that's on page. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. So, okay, page seven. Thank you. So, yeah, to, to fall in love, we individualize them based on the, the signs they give out, but at the same time, to love is to try to explicate those signs. Because those signs already involve possible worlds, unknown worlds. And that's where the deception or jealousy for Deleuze writes the truth of love. Because it's precisely in explicating those signs and that unknown, mysterious, possible world, we see that those signs could just as much, insofar as I've been selected, as, uh, you know, insofar as that in that dialectic of love and beloved, I've been selected to participate in that possible world, that unknown world. I, in my jealousy, seek out the truth and in, in in those signs emitted by the beloved and see that those same signs and in in, in that intensity and in that style of emitting signs have always already presupposed others whom you know, would be whom those signs would be for. And whether it's originally or whatever, that whole temporality is obviously fucked because it's, it's, it includes the future too, obviously, right? That those signs could be for some other, some other chosen lover. And Swan, I think that's what, that's where the obsessive black hole, the, it revolves around the, the emission of those signs chiefly from the face 
right? As Watch lays it out. And so uh, it's almost like Oded's space becomes a work of art, but it's a work of art for him that he can no longer fathom. And it completely ruins his, it leads him to his room. It leads him to his statue. That's the, that's the third machine. That's the, that's kind of the death drive, whatever. But it tells the truth of Swan. And in fact, Bruce, when Swan is like, it, it is kind of a, it's both a, it's supposed to kind of a scientific exposition or ex- thought experiment even about like what can go wrong. But it, at the same time, it raises Swan to the level of art. And it also teaches us something about the pathfalls of apprenticeship to these different signs and how the signs of love, as they say in like anti-Oedipus, like why a, you know, a mathematician creates a certain equation or a certain, certain proof is not divorced from him falling in love. In fact, it could be cause, causality could be the other way around. He falls in love, he goes mad, he, he creates these beautiful equations and proofs, whatever, right? So there's something going on there too, I think it's wrong, but even that, that in his failure, we, we learn something. And chiefly the narrator learns something. And, it, and it, that communication between failure and success, where Swan is like, his life is not his own. He's, he's, he really is able to teach us, you know, we stand on the shoulder of giants to a certain extent, whether or not they failed. And so Swan is, that's why I think Swan is, is beautiful and is, and is a good foil for the rest of the, of the series of novels. It's interesting how this first book, the rules always refers to the side as a whole. And that, I think it's only the beginning of the apprenticeship chapter that he divides it into two parts. But for the most part, he's always referring to a, a whole side in reference to um, the concept he's applying to. So I thought that was interesting. And as opposed to, you know, Guattari, who is always, you know, using the type of language in discourse that he does to be very precise and write things down to the molecular bits all the time. So I thought, you know, maybe again, just in part of the differences in training and, and personality and mm-hmm. personal preference, the way they choose to go about semiotics uh, in this way, I thought it was interesting. I like that. I think that you're you're right. It, exactly. In page twenty-seven, he, he he announces that division, that duality, or or say duplicitousness of the song. It designates an object that signifies something different. I like that. And and that and that too points to logic of sense and why he maybe continues this he wants to deepen that thought and, and thereby, you know, is and that I think too, um that's that's part of why we see hints of materialism, right? Because it's it's more ways sense is obviously in, involved in that working out. And uh Seymour Learn helps from there too. So there's there's a lot going on here, but I like I like that bringing out the duality of sign, which is which is not new to Deleuze, as we know. But he avoids. It's almost like he has one foot in the Caesarian structuralist tradition yeah. and one still, but yeah, but he's, right. He's he's having he his cake quite, yeah, yeah. He's in his larval state here in terms of what's uh, going to come, what's to come. You know. Yeah. I like this quote though, like further down in page twenty-seven, particularly the last. I think two sentences, but I'll read the whole little section. Each sign has two halves. It designates an object that signifies something different. The objective side is the side of pleasure, of immediate delight and practice. 
taking this way we have already sacrificed the truth side. We recognize things, but we never know them. What the sign signifies, we identify with the person or object it designates. We miss our finest encounters. We avoid the imperatives that emanate from them to the exploration of the encounters. We have preferred the faciality of recognitions. The facility. Our facility. And, yeah, when we ex- so- and when we experience the pleasure of an impression or splendor of a sign, we know nothing better than to say zut, 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 or what comes down to the same thing. Bravo, bravo. Expressions that manifest our homage to the object, which I think is just lovely writing. He's, quoting, he's, he's pointing us to, to a cruise path, yeah. I guess, early on. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is, I think, the two cruise passages, one yeah. the first one, and one, so one at the very beginning and one at the very end. I think this is great, and, and, he, and he's setting up the opposition between voluntary and involuntary memory, right, because it's the sensory signs in mm. their, okay. their intense joy, the, the obligation to think, and the the revelation, right? That's 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 involuntary memory. I love this. We recognize things, but we never know them. That's profound, right? Yeah, I. There's a profundity that just. <laughs> that's the. But that's also the Bergsonian thing, yeah. right? That that sort of we're already like precognizing them, so we never really like cognize them, and it's a. It has shades of the the object itself and stuff. Go ahead, Jesse. I mean, that rings true to my my practice, you know. Nietzsche's, when Nietzsche talks about forgetting, forgetfulness as healthy, it's the same idea. A lot of analysis is helping people forget so that they can just have new internal cognitive models. You know, the early analysts talk about bad objects, like we have all these experiences and then we create internal objects unconsciously and we use those as like reference points. I've talked about these a lot. So like if the, my mom's nipple doesn't fit well in my little infant mouth and I get overly frustrated and then I don't get my nutrients in my milk and I have to get fed by a bottle, yada, yada, I end up developing a bad mother object. And then like, and then I go through life and that's my model, my internal unconscious model from which I judge all situations and anything that kind of tips that model or triggers that model, that's what I pull from. So now I just kind of see unconsciously all mothers as these cold, bad people. And then maybe unconsciously, because I'm so used to that, I, I flip it and I get manic and I constantly idealize women to avoid feeling that negative feeling of them being uh, these negative figures. So now I worship women in some strange fetish way. Why was I talking about internal models again? Oh yeah, pre- <laughs> precognizing. So that's right. like a way where we, like, we don't really know. And most of analysis is about the, the whole point of transference is it's, it's a reality but it's not really the actual concrete material relationship. You meet, my patient meets me and they have these ideas about me. And then it's because they have their ideas about themselves and others. And you have to like restructure their objects. So that way they are actually in touch with reality, you know, in a good way. Like, like, wow, not all women are going to be depriving evil to me. Some, some might, but some I might get enjoyment from. And then you can, you know, that's where, where all the work is. And then you can actually know, who you want to be around and who you don't. Wow, there's some woman I want to spend time with and some I don't, you know? And that's like a mature, not neurotic position as opposed yeah. to just like precognizing, which is right. like all of X is bad or all of Y is good, which people are constantly doing. We see it in politics. Um, you know, this is why I like Watari. I never have periods in my sentences. I just trail off and have ellipses. <laughs> yeah, I understand It's just that. like him. I understand <laughs> that, man. 
I uh, there's <laughs> on the very last page of the chapter uh, two forty one. He talks about the narrator being this compound hero of the of the Greek and uh, and the Jew, right? The Greek in the Old Testament is what he says, and how he has to like Orpheus, like sacrifice all these important women in his life. And he talks about it as this, as reaching a becoming woman. And he's thinking of a thousand plateaus because obviously that's where we see that notion or most fully or at least uh, more fully, even if it's said for that in Antiochus or explicitly said, it takes this path precisely, I think, Walter doesn't say this here, but, he, but it takes this path due to what Deleuze describes early on in the book and then later in part two about Proust's homosexuality or his conceptualization or demonization of homosexuality and transsexuality. And in that sense, the, and in a very simple sense, just to keep it in an analytic vein, it has union resonances of, you know, an animus and animal. And these, but for Proust, these, you know, we have these, these two genders, so to speak, if they're all two or more, but they're stereotypically, they're non-communicating, right? They're sealed off from one another. And that's the complexity of, part and parcel of the complexity of the signs that we receive from the beloved and why Deleuze says that, like, for some men, it's not a big deal if, if the woman, you know, is either develops attachments to other women or even participates you know, in certain sexual scenarios with them. But there's something less cuckoldish, if we just use that awkward term about, uh, about that, than obviously if they developed those feelings and, and allowed and chose another man. There's a kind of complexity to that. And I know it's more related to part two, so I'll kind of leave it out. But Watchery bringing that up here with the narrator to fuel his like artistic machine. He's he has to commit to these sacrifices, the sacrifice of uh, the grandmother of Albertine, etc. So, just to riff off, kind of you know where you were the example you were giving about sort of against a kind of generalized misogyny, so to speak. I think Watchery is actually showing that there's. There's something key to these sacrifices. And really, he doesn't say much here about becoming a woman. I feel like he assumes we're going to have a thousand plateaus in mind in this book. He, he tries to tell us that in a footnote, right? But you got to think of a thousand plateaus. So here, he doesn't really he doesn't want to say much more about it, just that it's, that it's key to understanding the journey that the narrator is able to go through. And I think that sheds more light about, about Swan's black hole. He wasn't able to commit that sacrifice with Odette. He wasn't able to give that sacrifice. What is it that Oscar Wilde says about the weak man kills the one he loves with the word, but the strong man does it with the sword? I'm paraphrasing. Not like, <laughs> it's not, he used better diction than that. But that's basically, basically it here. The, the narrator's able to go the path of the sword and and offer up those sacrifices and not let them stop him from this journey. Even if they provide great obstacles, he, he gets around them. If the watchery, the little phrase, little phrase, has a role to play. And it's and it and it's precisely its hyper deterritorializing effects that get him out of the, the facialitary like collapse that 
or obsession that, that Swan submits to. I think this quote from 239 is interesting and it probably goes to, I think, perhaps the, before we discussed the bit from 241 that you were just discussing, Taylor. In Swan's case, for example, we will not say that identification is nothing. It will simply be considered a particular procedure functioning in the framework of particular assemblages, beginning from particular components and matters of expression. Considered in isolation, it is of no interest. It would not give rise to any a priori interpretations or return to any matheme and scare quotes or any universal imago, imago. Jitsu analysis will pose a completely different question. For example, is such a behavior, habit, or ritual called upon to take on a diagrammatic role? And how is this known, if not through a patient exploration, not only of the classified ways, but also all the trails, all the impassable paths, indeed, of what seem to be obvious impasses? General puzzles would be of no use for us here. Well, we're going, <laughs> we, we won't need general principles. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's, that's what he means, right? It's, it's, yeah, go ahead. Duncan's dunking a little on Young and Lacan. Oh, yes. Young is the Imago. Or mm-hmm. is, that, is that how you say it in Imago? Yeah, Imago. It's, Imago. Yeah. That's Young's concept that we tried to get Freud used, and then Lacan, a little bit of Matthew. Lacan in there. The Matthew, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to, like, really describe what Young is going into, except to say that scientifically, like, in, entomologically with insects, that, you know, that metamorphose, right? The imago is, is the adult after, after being in the, the pupil stage. The, you know, uh, so. I think that's right. I, I have to revisit all this terminology, but... Well, for yeah. psychoanalysis, the imago, I don't know where it linguistically comes from, but it just means an internal image. Mm-hmm. Kind of okay. like I was talking about objects earlier. Right. It's, it's basically just an internal object, like a representation. Imago is related to uh, archetype. You know, it's like pre-archetype young. But I don't know why it shares that name with the... It's because it's Latin. It's it's Latin, right? I mean, it's it's uh, it's just from. I mean, for for Germans, it's a nice way to like. Why? I, this is why I can't really fault straight Like, why wouldn't you turn to the Latin to like try to make yeah. a German turn stand out? Yeah, um, yeah, he did. I mean, you know, but uh, but yeah, the imago. It, it's it's obviously related to the word for image and imagination and, and such. Yeah, um, I'm not exactly sure why it has that entomology, but uh, you know that's that's a question for entomologists. I mean, they they probably have a good imago conception of what they mean. Do you see this kind of goes to your what was it? Music is sex, perhaps here. This is from the bottom of a page two thirty nine as well. Thus, here music will not have been a sublimated sublimated stopgap opening up a symbolic derivation of libido but an essential tool in the launching of a machine catalyzing new semiotic components, liberating new potentialities of deterritorialization and involving in return a shaking up of the ego, which makes pathological formation appear, which insert themselves effortlessly within certain sociological inertias of the era. Mm-hmm. A lot to unpack. I actually wrote, <laughs> on, I actually wrote the word unpack like, <laughs> right there. Oh, man. Yeah, oh, but, <laughs> but but I think but I think it, it does initially. Yeah, yeah. It says a little bit more about the music, the sex thing. It's not sublimated, right? Yeah, music isn't 
it can be sublimation sure. but at its core it is music is very physical not to drone on about music but like the reason we hear a note or or the reason if you have more than just one note you're talking about difference on a vibratory level vibrations like if you have an a and an a sharp they the sounds conflict because they're a half step apart but when you listen to those two notes played at the same time you're trying to compute and process them so it sounds like rhythmic if you've ever heard two notes played very close to each other it creates motion so resonance yeah resonance and Mm -hmm. that's how a synth works when you get like a boom 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 it like uh just i can't get into all the technicals of it but music is incredibly physical it has nothing to do with sublimating into some sort of Maybe it did in this like 16th century when you had all these <laughs> nerds with harpsichords making chamber music. Magicals and shit. I love well, chamber music. Well, but. <laughs> I mean, part of part of part of why Socrates argues to, to get rid of poets, you know, from the city is, you know, it has to do with the, the different genres of poetry have to do with the different cultivation of a certain affect by the people, in which affects are are, are are you know contribute to keeping that the stability of the city and the harmony, so to speak. You know, mm-hmm. that's a poem or the poem. Um, but yeah, certain poetry uh, deterritorializes those affects, so to speak. Right. And I, I assume I'm pretty sure he makes clear it has to do with it also has to do with tempo. Let's get back to we kind of started with um <laughs> with Nietzsche, right? And his wanting to just de- you territorialize or take to take a moment uh, the German language. I, my, my favorite professor, or one of my favorites, I have two. Uh, he was a Nietzsche scholar. He studied in German under Neil Lauer. He's got a translated book on Nietzsche. It's really good. Anyway, he, he talks about reading. Reading Nietzsche is, you know, it's more like reading Goethe than reading Kant, right? He said something fascinating about just the, the broadness of Nietzsche's vocabulary yeah. being, being unlike. Any other German that that he had that he had read and studied, and you know he was he was versed very well in philosophy and literature. So I find that interesting. Um, and so you could kind of throw Nietzsche can be I think used as an example when they talk when Elizabeth we talk about modern literature or about like making language stutter like, like in itself, not starting in language and sort of carrying. If not a whole language, at least a sub, you know, zone of of language, and that's precisely that minoritarian view. And uh, I think with Proust, it's all knowing that here, if we are detailing the machines of visual art and musical art, like we're using this telescope in the scientific way to report on astronomical words, like here's what the the vehicle would be, right? So if we even call, we just talk about Proust's novel as a work of fiction, there's something reductive or reductionist about it. Um, I think Watchery wants to make that very clear, like first and foremost. And, and Deleuze, and, and too, with his, you know, again, kind of showing that Proust is on a level that's even potentially higher than and the greatest philosopher ever. To go back to music, I was thinking about Sun O. Ooh, I don't know if either anyone's familiar with yeah. it, but like the physical experience of the music is like 
I mean, it's preeminent whenever sure. being their show because it's like you're, you're hearing, it, but you can like literally, yeah, you can hear. You know, they're in like drop E tuning, so like it was. Well, so so you can feel, feel this like you can feel, feel the vibrations exactly. Yeah. You could feel yeah. these very intensive, especially when they're hitting the super low notes. Like it would kind of rat, like a kind of rattling. <laughs> in your your ribcage, your yeah. ribcage rattles, and yeah. your head, your head rattles. Um, you can feel it in your bones. Yeah. You guys heard of the band The Body? Yeah. No, I have. <laughs> nice. I have to them, though. They're uh, similar to Sun O. Okay. I just play through a wall of amps, and uh, gotcha. I've seen them many times live, and they're just you. The, the air gets knocked out of your lungs. Right. No, that, that makes <laughs> sense. Crazy. Yeah. You're being you're being like physically assaulted, right? Um, yeah. But that's I mean that's that's kind of what that's a yeah. I, I guess that's that's a good another good way to talk about why maybe doors ops for just instead of a. It's because he's he's not yet kind of proposing this diagrammatic framework that Watsuri has. I think you know he's he's on this level where just that just that one will showcase how what really he's wanting to talk about, which is this notion of thinking thought occurs within thinking or whatever due to violence. It's due to a and it's something that comes from outside. And I think that music, in its way of, I know there's a speed of sound, right? But in its way of sort of infusing our senses, it's, you know, it, it traverses that distance without interval, as he describes. And, and in that way, it, I think that's why for Proust, that, that's why it's like, it's a little, reading Proust, it's, it's the, it's, it's the highest level. It's it's, it's essence. It, it captures that. For Guattari, he, he wants to say it's it's because of its effective deterritorialization. Right? It's it's just in general more deterritorialized form of of uh, of art. Others, you know, that's that's why you know refrains are given. I think at least in this work. Has given a sort of precedence uh, by Guattari because he's reflecting on what Bruce has taught him. That in the end, it's, it's the music that helps the narrator, the little phrase, the little semiotic proposition uh, to, to sort of break out of that black hole. I feel like music itself is very much more tied to memory than, at least for me, I think, than any other sense. Like, I listen to a song because it can, like, t- it takes me back. Right. Like I can go, if I want to think about a certain era of my life, I can listen to a song and it'll, it sort of does, I don't know what the semiotic process is, but I was thinking about that in the context of, of memory. When I, uh, I was listening to like Tupac's All Eyes on Me the other day and that like came out when I was like, I think in sixth or seventh grade, seventh grade probably. Right. And so yeah. it, it fills me with those like feelings from that era and like other memories get triggered. Yeah. Chain of signifiers. You know, it, it, it crystallizes time in a way, obviously, but it, you can also be doing so many other things while you're listening to music. Yeah. Driving to work, having sex, whatever, <laughs> right? A lot of times, you know, different music's touching different moods, which already involves a whole chain of associations. That's just my take. In a different way than I think even like a movie or a painting, even a smell or anything else like music, for me, has that direct 
association of memory or nostalgia more intensely than anything else? Maybe it's because part of it, in part, it, it allows a certain kind of dissociation. Um, not in the psychological sense, but uh, with music, you can multitask in a way that yeah. while you're watching a film or watching a um, uh, ballet performance or watching or painting or, or, or any of the other, other types of arts. So um, now to the to the degree that one can say one is actively listening or passively listening is a is a different matter. But, um, but yeah, music is sort of uh, singular in that way, in that it allows for certain kinds of uh, simultaneous activities to happen as it occurs. Also, it divides time up, right? You, you can think about the the intro. Verse, chorus, verse, outro, and so on. I mean, not not traditional, right? Just in a, in a simple way. And so it kind of cuts up time normally uh, in a way that also you know, brings back brings back memories. And and I, I I do think that there's something where it's. I think Alfonso really did say it in a, in a nice way. This question of whether or not we're actually a passenger this thing. It's like, mm. you know, you could be eating a sandwich at work for bologna sandwich mayonnaise, and you might be passively eating it, but it's, you're still, it's, 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 it's obviously more direct, and you're focusing, you're spending time to doing this, but music, we don't really necessarily spend time. Right? I mean, like, it's a part of our time. It's like, it's like a fabric of our, of our existence, and we can remember where we heard like a certain song for the first time or where we, or, or, or there's a more crystallized like little bubble of time. When we yeah. Imagine being at certain places. Right. That, that song being dominant. Yeah. There's also, there's also that notion of, you know, either you call it like the top 40 or whatever, right. Or, or, you know, it could be your favorite artist. It's, it's totally cold and obscure, but you know, the radio is, and MTV, I mean, like for for all of us, I think MTV and VH1 were much more of a of a actually playing music, and that was another way because I didn't always listen to the radio. My sister always played whatever CDs she had. She had a shit ton, so she was kind of that was my apprenticeship in music. Was her having a very eclectic taste from like Outkast to Rita McIntyre, you know, <laughs> and then and back again. And I, yeah, I so I totally associate all of that with especially early life, early life kind of crystallizing. And as your kid, is it music most easily consumable medium, whether or not whether we want to or not, right? We are also kind of like just out in public assaulted by it sometimes by like uh, it, it, it's an intrusion in our life where a car goes by blasting you know, could be could be could be our potential favorite song Right, we don't know yet. It's um, it is kind of like that that stimuli that we're <laughs> that's contingent and completely you know haphazard and not necessarily something that that we consent to. Right, we usually consent to a certain taste, so mostly of certain smells. But you at the social distance <laughs> already kind of naturally. Right, that's the whole you know when we stop. We've talked about it on this fucking podcast, right? Right about the 
you know, we, we evolved to stand up straight and stop stop having our heads in the shit or something yeah. or something. I think DC brought it up. But uh, you know, usually smells are we consent to and you can generally get away from from one uh, if we don't touch the same way. Obviously there's, you know, all kinds of bodily physical violence but sound sounds just that it's a sound is numinal I wrote, yeah. a, I wrote a blog post on this trying Great. to process my tinnitus and that sound mm. is like the drive Freud's drive or yeah creep in that you, you never turn sound off like like you're saying smell you can avoid sense you can avoid to some extent Sight, you can close your eyes and, right. and simulate no sight, even though you see the inside of your eyelids. Right. Silence, you can shut shut your own mouth. But sound, there's always sound. And even yeah. if you go deaf, you know, tonight is the prevailing theory is that, like, you're somewhat deaf. So that way, the, the deafness can't be processed by your brain and mind, so you generate pitches. Isn't that fucking crazy? That's, yeah. that's like Kantian, that, like, you've hit the limit of one of the categories of understanding and now it's right. You can't process the negative. So it creates pitch. <laughs> yeah. It's so get, interesting to get to the sun. O stuff like would a completely deaf person not feel the same vibrations. Right. Beethoven and, and, was deaf. Exactly. I mean, that's, Crazy, that's right? just the one thing in the very first and second page. He just brings up, he brings up like the show and the beat, Beat poets, and it says like we need to talk more about synesthesia and hyperesthesia and, and these other sensory overlappings, right? And, and, and this is why he talks about Kafka too. He's like he talks about they have um, what this kind of semiotic perceptive overlapping or mutations of perceptive components, uh, which includes overlapping of sensorial you know, feelings. So this this notion that Sound, as you said, DC, yeah, we can't turn it off. It assails us. And, you know, given amplification, like it has a certain type of amplification that we can feel. We can feel it on our skeletal structure. We are, we are literally moved by it. That's, that's the violence of thinking. I mean, that's, if you think about the way that, even in just the Christian Science book, but also the repetition, it talks about the different faculties, sort of. Take their limit and then producing a, a violence uh, in each other and that in that disharmony it's there's there's thinking yeah there's something there's something really fascinating about sound as a phenomenon spatially too but I'll, but but temporally is is creepy if you're screaming up watcher he makes the, the joke uh, around the part where you read that identification about Swan assuming a castration complex or whatever do you remember that DC you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I missed that. Inquitory? I thought it was Inquitory. Yeah, I just wanted to find it. Yeah, does do you I wanted maybe for sure oh. says castration. Yeah, he does. I wanted to maybe Alfonso and BC, y'all could bring this up. I want to hear about I want to hear about castration. They're threatening castration. Oh no. Nihilists. He puts the word assume in staircase. Uh, assume that castration. Yeah, here I found it. It's okay. on page. Uh, Assuming is castration. Thank yes. you. Yes, page two thirty-eight, and it is at yeah. the top. It's He's, in the upper first paragraph. It's quite lengthy. He he asked all of these. He asked all of these rhetorical questions about 
a typical psychoanalytic interpretation, either you know, proofs biographically, which would be just really bad, or just the text in general. It even has a, that interesting footnote where he credits tools for proofs of science and then cites another work that he says he was unfamiliar with when he was writing his book, um, but that he he thinks they do like a great analysis of music in the in, in the novel, specifically the Fuster novel, but they but he like he cringes right at their traditional psychoanalytic interpretations that they like force everything back into. And um and so he asks all these rhetorical questions and one of them is about about assuming castration for Swan. So he's I guess could you say something maybe about castration for either of you, like in relation to what we talked about earlier with like the black hole or anything in general. Psychoanalytically you have to be castrated to use language to signify. Right. Because schizophrenics just have washes of intensities and affects and body sensations, and they don't really put it to language. And to be castrated means you go through the whole Oedipal triangle and all that stuff. And, and we'll go into all that because people either know it or don't, and they can go read about it. But And the signifier forever disconnects the direct intense experience from its sign and all that stuff what Tom talks about. But like, I don't know, Kess, I think the, the cool thing here with Quattari and all of his rhetorical questions is uh, he, he just kind of disregards like the boring old interpretations, which sometimes can be true, but right. it's, that's like a good method. It's a good, uh, epistemological method he just starts from like yeah this is all the stuff we know or that we're taught about but does any of that really apply here like even if it does let's just pretend it doesn't right now and see what we actually come up with when we experience this story so he's like actually uh Atari's actually a pretty good thinker in that mm. sense he's like let's just see what the text tells us or what the person tells us rather than load everything down with these preconceived notions. Right. That's what I've always loved about the guy. He just yeah. like, you know, wants to read this and have some ideas about it and see where shit goes. Um, as opposed to have all these like scientific categories in advance and trying to yeah. prove or disprove them and all that stuff. So in that way, it's kind of like Foucault to some degree. Mm-hmm. Start, it, that's philosophy. Trying to yeah, start right. back over, <laughs> From the from the base as basic right. as we can get and ask questions. Yeah. So. Yeah, and this yeah. is you're yeah, going go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, my, my I guess my quick thing was just he links it. He links two things to start the rhetorical questions, which is like, why is it that Odette's face, her faciality traits, triggered the semiotic collapse that Swan falls into in the failure entails. And that's when he's like, you know, is it this identification with the mother? Is it, is it, he doesn't assume his castration, right? Um, so I just think that's interesting. He's, he's, he's already, you know, obviously rhetorically like saying, well, the, that's the standard way of thinking. Let's go further. I do that with patients too, in a different way. They, they'll come with, they'll come in with all of their uh, preconceived ways of thinking with, of the world. Like, all right, you know, you, you only see me an hour a week. You can think, 
you can have all those thoughts and feelings when you're not with me. You want to try something different when you're with mm-hmm. me? You know, like I, I see Guattari. He always, he writes like analysts talk to their patients sometimes. That's why I like him so much. He's saying like, it's fascinating. he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can take all this stuff, but you want to try something new today? You know, like I read Guattari's always inviting. What were you going to say, Alfonso? He had something. I was just going to say that, you know, just posing the question in this way is such an everyday an easy everyday way of getting into of exploring a context that is not what you can see. So when you're faced with an environment that invites a certain kind of fixation, the first and easiest thing you can do is to sit back and ask yourself, why? Why this and why that? You know, like you see the same, you don't have to come with preconceived intellectual notions of what you think this is and how it should be reconstructed. You should just be in the moment and let the let the essence of the environment wash over and envelop you and through that start to generate you know your clarity through the through posing the questions of what is going on. So, I mean, in terms of like castration and existing in the symbolic order, uh, and you know, the relation of the subject to, you know, because the name of the father and you know, if you have that connection, then you're still within the symbolic. If you don't have that, then you know, you're in, in, in psychosis and, and these things. You know, if what Guattari does very well is to constantly think outside the box. And as I was saying before, posing the question is one of the tools, um, one of the simplest tools of doing that. Through that, you are able to, you know, as a kind of heterogeneous repetition, I guess maybe if you want to be losing about it, you can get different types of responses and results that aren't necessarily the same. So you work yeah. actually this kind of this kind of illness. So you know you're being you're being dropped into an unknown. This unknown is kind of a body without organs it has all these sort of potentials that you don't know what's gonna to happen to you, what's gonna happen, you know, within the greater milieu of what, what you're living in. So but you know that if you just sort of start somewhere and project a line of flight, then you can start to develop a way of of existing in and traversing through that unknown to make something that you can work with, to get some material that you can work with, material, you know, intellectual or otherwise, or whatever. And that is, that's what he does here. He begins with a question and then proceeds to work through um, a line of thought. So, so that's what sticks out to me. So it's not that it's not that you have to become fixated and assume your castration to remain fixated on the space that Oda's face uh, functions as. Swan could do what we're talking about now, but it appears that he doesn't. So what Watson is highlighting here is the importance of of how asking simple questions can get you out of that fixation to um, other other domains of possibility. 
transracial possibility for space. So that's what sticks out to me. I, I like that a lot, man. I, True. I'm glad DC agrees. I, I, would, I would say I think that you encapsulated a certain moment or movement that Marwell tries to like uh, I'm to bring that up. <laughs> yeah, in non philosophy, but uh, we'll leave that for later. I just, yeah, that that question of everything you said about this question of like, finding this, this material and, and working through this unknown, I, I think that that's what Deleuze tries to see in, in the relation of love, which, of course, you know, for Badu, that's kind of when he says like art, science, politics, love, like love is always usually like. What he calls anti-philosophers, like they call He a lot of times will just shorthand that for psychoanalysis. So this question of the movement of question of the of jealousy being the the truth of the science of love, and, and you know it's involved in a kind of delirium about sort of taking that to its limit. Yeah, I think that Swan falters on that that level. Right? He's he whether or not he is obviously attentive and he's attuned and he's whether, I mean, he's trained, but he has this inborn ability to access the sensual signs that could lead him to the ideal domain of the work of art and essence. He has everything he needs. He just, on that on that level, on the, you know, in Guattari's, with the rhetorical questions, there's a certain sense where there is, I mean, he is telling the truth that's all on the side. There's, there's a certain little bit of nugget of, of truth because it's almost like he's joking about swans. This is how psychoanalysis would read, or here, here's here's kind of like how I could read Swan and his semiotic collapse. Here's where we could go. This is the this is the usual path, and and it's not that the, that path is wrong, as you and DC were both saying. It's it's that it comes, you know, it comes pre-equipped with ways of dealing with the sing- very singular situation, the very particular all the particularities of Swan's journey, it comes able to generalize them and therefore like to make them speak and make them to tell a certain truth that would tell it slant and would not tell it. It's because as Dewey says, right, it's the search is about a truth of time, a truth in time and signs are what are, are the means by which we can, apprehend that. So I, I, I think that, you know, for Guattari, you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be well-equipped, you're not going to be pre-equipped, you can't be pre-equipped, as you said, uh, to, to encounter these, just like the events, right? So, and I love the, the phrase, reassuring psychogenesis. I like that. That's, that's a, it's a nice way of calling into question the typical means of dealing with Swan, considering it's almost like Rogers, like, consider Swan comes to you for analysis, like, are you going to apply these grids? Are you going to see in all these different details we learn, or are you going to try to make him fit into that, or are you going to let him, let him lead you down, down a certain path? This makes me think of, you know, memory in its problematic aspects. But it also, in conjunction with our discussion earlier, you know, it is a little bit interesting that how we were discussing music in terms of memory is a bit unique to the advent of recorded music. 
you know, it's mm-hmm. prior to that people relied on live performance. Had to be live, yeah. That's the, that's so, the original analog. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're going so, to So the relation of memory to music and what it meant to remember a performance over longer periods of, of interest. You know, I might only hear this piece once. I might, it might be 10 years before I hear this piece again. You know, I don't, I don't write. So how does that one performance in my memory of it, you know, perform its own psychogenesis over the course of time? That's an interesting, interesting break, break point, you know, the, the, the advent of recorded music and how, you know, in the process that created a new milieu or new retrieval of a certain type of medium, subjective medium, in relation to memory. What did recorded music do to the subject that could not have happened otherwise without recorded music? It allowed us to tie certain experiences to music in a regular, maybe more formalized way, to the point where, you know, as you brought up earlier, Taylor, music, we had music around us all the time, you know, to different intensities. Now you have a lot of music that is, you know, the loudest levels are a lot higher than they were in the beginning of recorded music. So now it's not just that you have a lot of music around you, you have a lot of intense, loud music around you. So how does that, how does that environment, you know, affect the subject and their, their memory in relation to time? And I wish I had a better, I'm still working on this, I wish I had a better understanding of Deleuze's sense of time. Because it's, uh, that's, it, it sounds like we're, we're leaning so, so hard into that. We haven't, we haven't gotten there yet. But later, you know, as he gets, as he gets later into the, 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 the whole part one, you know, he starts explicating. You're right. Uh, the, this is a, this is where like Seema Nauru fit in and just very quickly the, the technological capacity is not just the recording, but if you said it, the playback. Uh, and uh, the, the technological, you know, I mean, it's the very fact that something like Seno is possible right? with yeah. all the di- all the different mutations. It's not just it's not just technological advancement. It's also obviously musical mutations. And and we see this we see the same kind of development in computer processing. We see it developing in the size of TVs, the 4K, right? The the, the ability to you know, so this has cinematic, um, yeah. you know, capacities. And, and Simo Dong is always, he has, he has some really beautiful words about, like, photographs. And and he even gives, like, the compound, it's some silver compound about the, 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 the tiny molecules that receive the, the photographic image. And now they have to be fine enough or... Uh, multiplicitous enough to capture a certain detail, right? So there's a technological limit, and part of it, you know, you want to loosely use the, the term accelerationism. Part of that is like is, is about technological capacity. Is you know, so is describing not just the regime of individuation, but the the, the the power of what not just any one body can do, but a, you know, but a, a sort of swarm of 
of, of molecules or bodies we do. And I think that that's also true of the difference in regimes between the writing machine that boost instantiates and the musical machine that he will come to describe as it's it, it's it's very Plato Socrates thing with you know, mocking rhetoric and it you use and yet you participate in rhetoric in your dialogues, right? Like there's a there's a way in which Proust takes the literary machine to its limit and, and bows its you know tips its cap to what music can do. And that is a kind of communication with the work of our the world, the universe of music in a way that has unintended, unforeseen effects. You know, there's there's no way to say that Proust's search inspired great music of the twentieth century, and there's no way to disprove that. And in fact I would wager that it did if not directly on the production of music, but the production of musical effects in us as readers. Uh, I think that's why the reason books are here so profoundly interested in them because of the effects that they produce that aren't just about pleasure of hearing, but resonate with like certain truths objectively. This is just a random side note. It's funny you mentioned the 4K and AKTVs. Because yeah. I wonder, in terms of you know, limitations, you know, the human eye can only recognize so much things of the universe in terms of colors compressed uh, into you know, a single a single point. Right, but you know, maybe because I wonder, you know, what if the limits of recognition in terms of that kind of technology uh, is watching, you know, being a viewer, uh, perhaps it has more functionality on the back end in terms of for the filmmaker, because what that what filming at those resolutions allows for is greater a certain type of process. And so, for example, now that you have AK, you have you can you can film at higher uh, frame rates. Right. So when you go to do stuff like slow motion, you know you can get really really fantastic effects. So it's almost like that kind of limitation produces uh, produces not not necessarily uh, a direct aesthetic purpose, but a performative purpose that you that is then you sort of refer into the aesthetic experience, but it's not perceptible per se on the surface level. Yeah, I, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's. That's cool. Go ahead, DC. No, I was just commenting on that. I think that's, I didn't know that behind the scenes bit about, you know, I was always one of those guys, oh, we can't even, humans can't even see those details. Why bother? But I didn't realize there was this behind the scenes functionality to it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and that's that's a big, that's a big thing on um, the other synonym translation that I'm finishing up now is, it's his course on perception. And he goes through all the different realms beyond the five senses because he does entertain the question of synesthesia. Yeah. And he, and in fact, he dedicated the two volumes or the individuation book he wrote to uh, Merleau Ponty. And what he cites him as 
one of the few to bring up this question of the overlapping of perceptive coordinates and and just to stick with music always there are my wife she she told me about this book and she really watched some documentaries about um some of these amazing savants on the autistic spectrum either with Asperger's or whatever and one of their features is with numbers associating colors or certain well, that was in uh, Born on a Blue Day by, but the the other guy said that numbers were corresponding with like shapes or really figures more than just simple geometrical shapes. And we talk about colorful music. We talk about um, we talk about loud colors too, kind of in a way, right? Like, we'll um, there's a way in which even Sharp us normies. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, like. Um, there's a way that we can, that we, we already kind of do this and unlock it. It's just that, I mean, that's part of the, the gank memes. The, the screen is the brain, you know, kind of thing where the, the neural pathways are, are more rhizomatic potentially, um, than we think. And just as a curveball or just an aside, I, I think about like, oh, let's see. It's a fucking movie that's 2018 or 19 with the aliens and it's like, you know, it's a totally new alphabet. Right. The arrival, yeah. Yeah, the arrival. Amy Adams. Yeah, Amy yeah. Adams. Uh, yeah, because we kind of discussed this too, because I, I was going to mention like Memento is maybe ooh, a good foil ooh, and you mentioned... Ooh. Talk about Memento, arrival. please. No, no, you, you, you've worked this thought out more than I have on, <laughs> on the arrival. Memento, obviously, right, so his he sort of is constructing his own... This sort of subjectivity in the sense, like he saved his wife's hairbrush and some, like a book she had and some of her belongings. And, um, he uses those, like he hires a prostitute to pretend that they're her objects and to like leave them around, um, his, his, uh, motel room, for example. And then like tells her to go take a shower. And so he's trying to access that those memories of his, his wife because like he has the disorder where he can't he can't make new memories so he does remember his whole life up until his like injury that he received during an attack it's all about him constructing this false narrative to give himself a purpose in life as well and it's so i think so many elements are like he's got all the tattoos i mean yes he, yeah he's, he's got, got the like, tattoos on him yeah literally i've only really, really seen the movie his um, body is marked by signs <laughs> literally he, You've, you've read the book as well as what you're saying? I haven't read the book, no. Oh, okay, okay. I don't but know if there is a he, book. Or if it's just, yeah. th- there is a book that Jonathan Nolan wrote, a small... It's like Memento Mori, I believe, is the title of the... Right. It's like a short story. Um, so, it, so it is about... Yeah, that's interesting, right? Cause, but know, also, like, the deception of the lover, too, because Carrie Ann mm-hmm. Moss, like, he ends up getting her boyfriend killed, and she, like, they end up sleeping together... And she sort of like tricks him into his own, um, I don't know, like she fucks with his whole like, program and kind of like sends him into this. I'm, I'm actually sad. I'm sad, Coop, you didn't assign this as homework for us <laughs> to rewatch. Well, we still have, there's other have chapters. To, there's other, there's other chapters. There's other oh. chapters discussing the, the book, right? So, I mean, it might well, be yeah. something good to do. In, in yeah, we'll have to bring back up. Obviously, Memento is so cool. Because I think it's going to pick up, like, everybody will recognize. If everybody gets one movie, 
memory uh, work, you know. You're gonna say you're gonna to, I'm just gonna peg you. Well, for this, for the co- in in the yeah. context of of uh of Proust and I I would I, I would put down and, and I'm thinking of the missionary process as a whole, but also right. in, in light of the Proust stuff, uh, I would put down twelve monkeys. Uh, it has the obviously it's got the psychiatric framework uh, as well that we can draw upon. But the the, the shit about temporality, yeah, and temporalities. Um, what about you guys, DC, Alfonso? Do y'all have a? Can you guys think off the like spur of the moment, like what would be a what would fit in here, or what would just be a movie to maybe just to just discuss? You know, I'll leave it open. Off top, I'm thinking maybe either possibly Eyes Wide Shut or Donnie Darko. Oh shit! I, I see Donnie Darko very clearly. I don't remember. Eyes Wide Shut, so... Eyes Wide Shut has that, like, it has that little refrain, that little piano refrain that kind of okay, repeats okay, it in it, okay. that little playful yeah. note. That's fascinating. See, those are... Those, we could add... I mean, yeah. Go ahead, DC, did you have a, a thought, or do you have a film that you just... Memento's good, Eyes Wide Shut is good. Uh, you know, I, I'm such a big movie guy. Um... Shit. Just name a few. Like, you don't have to just say just one. Everybody can name a few. I Donnie Darko with the temporality stuff is, yeah. is, is really, really good here. Yeah, I like <laughs> ambient, <laughs> atmospheric movies. So, like, what, The Thing or Aliens? The Thing's good. Alien's good. Um, yeah. Apocalypse Now. Okay, yeah. Uh-huh. Beyond the Black Rainbow and Mandy. Oh, yeah. That guy did both of those. I haven't seen either of those. What was, who's that director who's kind of an asshole, but he's good, he's European. Um, oh, Lars von Trayer. His stuff oh, yeah. is interesting. And um, yes. Yeah. Who's that other guy who's European and makes really edgy shit? Um, the guy that did Bone Tomahawk. Think about oh, that. I haven't heard of that. What is that? Oh, God. I don't know any of this shit. The guy's kind oh, of like a, no. a fast... Uh, I guess I know I well, I know, I know, I know. DC says we have to watch Taxi Driver. Right? I love Taxi Driver. So you we have my recent post on it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So we have to watch Taxi Driver, uh, obviously. Cool. And Deleuze wrote on it too. I gotta find that. You gotta send that to me so I can put it in there. I swear, you know, um, on the Deleuze seminars, I saw on Facebook. This is one of the good things of being in some of these little groups, like the Laurel group. Daniel Smith and Charles Stavall, Charles Stavall, who translated Logic Sense and the Abyss of Air. Excuse okay. me. Um, they have some new Deleuze seminars translated. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll find the link for everybody. Yeah. But okay. I, actually, I actually have the fucking seminar. I couldn't find it for you, and I, I, I maybe didn't look hard enough. I spent about thirty minutes, so I, I obviously was looking looking in the wrong place, but I printed off the English of Dulles talking about taxi driver and um, the several books, which don't get enough love in yeah. Louisiana. Um, there are there are some really good similar programs that that give it love, and so you you get artists like. A lot of the a lot of the stuff that's been written on the things. time image might be relevant totally. in particular. Yeah, right? no, totally, totally. I mean, if if we were to jump off Bruce and Science, we would go to the cinema books, I think. But we already have like 
a list. Yeah, I guess if I had to name one other movie besides Four Monkeys, I think I would probably watch Back to the Future just for fucking. <laughs> I mean, okay. come on, the edible theme. Yeah. Time travel. I mean, and and, and it being lighthearted, right? Because uh, I'm sure you guys are gonna name some. Like Memento is a fucking. That's gonna. That's gonna change your life, man. Like if you, if you, if you give it due proper attention, it's gonna fuck you up. So it's so good too. Like in just like the formality, like in the formal aspect of the way the film is edited, right? It's like the I forget what the word is. It's like the sujet. It's like the narrative and the sujet structure are like different, right? Because the basically it starts at the beginning and the end, and then like. Is intercutting until it meets in the middle of the story, sort of. Interesting. In terms of like the way that it's, I don't know, I don't that it's edited, which reveal is like right. sort of like well, it's a kind right, of a so gimmick, and it's right, a gimmick it's, in a sense, but it like works effectively in terms of the story, like to where it really like ooh. hits you over the head, where in the middle you realize, oh shit, he's just constructed his whole reality. It's, 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 it's the it's the between time. It's this, the entretemps. The meanwhile, yeah. Well, Scoop, you only name Memento. You have a you have a more lighthearted like juxtaposition to balance out your. Yeah, I don't really do lighthearted that much. <laughs> I like something is, heavy and like. Is Back to the Future not good? Do you not like? Uh, no, it's a it's yeah, it's like it's good. Yeah. It's a well, it's, nostalgic it's film. Okay, yeah, exactly. Well. That's another reason to go. I love the whole. I love and, the whole idea of giving birth to your father. Right? That's a whole. Yeah. Thing. Right. That's, yeah. Exactly. That's whole, that, like that's some Nick. That's some like templexity sort of. Right. And uh, I, I first got the idea from. Did you guys ever read Harold Bloom? No. He wrote a book. But I know the name. Yeah. He wrote a book called. Well, he wrote a lot of books. He lived to be like ninety. Fucking great. More of a literary guy. I'm sure you, Alfonso, you might have some books. Um, Anxiety of Influence. You guys heard of that? Mm-hmm. I don't have any hero booms, but I, I, the name sounds very familiar. I'll yeah, rings a bell. Don't, I've heard of it. I'll be very quick. Uh, Anxiety of Influence. He reads Wordsworth and Coleridge, right? They're the first, Ooh, British, yeah. they're the first British romanticists. Those are my, even though they are, well, totally, Wordsworth, I don't fuck with too much. Well, Wordsworth's fine. It's funny. I, I agree with you. Coleridge, I, I had a tweet, right? But, they were the they were like the first generation, even though they were like wildly different. But then you had Shelley and Keats, um, and they both had very young. Obviously, they were for different reasons. But Harold Bloom uses a lot of philosophy, including a lot of Nietzsche, to basically argue that the second generation of romantic poets were had this complex this anxiety of influence about about wars with the calling through these giants right these like artistic intellectual giants and that they and that that and, and it has obviously he mobilizes Floyd and he's not like he doesn't make it super edible so like they want to kill them but he plays with that trope and he um it's a it's a it's a short book. It's actually it's actually very very good. He he's able to like weave in all these different thinkers from philosophy and and literature. Actually, uh, yeah. Exactly. Did, you mentioned Keats. This uh, this bit from Proust and Signs actually recalled a 
a specific poem from Keats, La Belle okay. Dame Sans Merci. Yeah, he says, on one hand, the avowal, the declaration of my feelings to the woman I love no longer seemed to me one of the crucial and necessary scenes of love nor love itself an external reality. How difficult Ooh. it is in each realm to renounce this belief in an external reality. The sensuous signs lay a trap for us Ooh. and invite us to seek their meaning in the object that bears or emits them so that the possibility of failure, the abandonment of interpretation is like a worm in the fruit. Let me, read the, let me read the actual poem so you can kind of get this. So this is Keats. Oh, what can ail thee, knight at arms, alone and palely loitering? The sedge has withered from the lake, and no birds sing. Oh, what can ail thee, knight at arms, so haggard and so woe-begone? The squirrel's granary is full, and the harvest done. I see a lily on thy brow, with anguish moist and fever dew, and on thy cheeks a fading rose, fast withereth too. I met a lady in the meads, full beautiful, a fairy's child. Her hair was long, her foot was light, and her eyes were wild. I made a garland for her head, and bracelets too, in fragrant zone. She looked at me as she did love, and made sweet moan. I set her on my pacing steed, and nothing else saw all day long. For sidelong would she bend and sing a fairy's song. She found me roots of relish sweet, and honey wild, and manna dew. And sure in language strange she said, I love thee true. She took me to her elfin grot, and there she wept and sighed full sore. And there I shut her wild eyes with kisses for. And there she lulled me asleep, and there I dreamed, ah, woe betide, the latest dream I ever dreamt on the cold hillside. I saw pale kings and princes too, pale warriors death pale were they all. They cried, La Belle Dame sans merci, Thee hath enthralled. I saw their starved lips in the gloam with horrid warning gaped wide, and I awoke and found me here on the cold hillside. And this is why I sojourn here, alone and palely loitering, though the sedge is withered from the lake and no birds sing. I have two things. One, when it has an accent, right, it's supposed to be two beats. It's uh, like, uh, what was the... Pull it back up. It was beautiful. It was amazing. The gaped... The warning, the horrid warning gaped wide. Like, like, anyway, the, I guess I would translate that as like the cold hearted bitch. Right? The cold hearted beautiful bitch. Well, see, uh, I saw this is the allure. This is the, uh, to me, it would, like the metaphor was the allure of the worldly sign and taking things, taking the sign for its truth. I love that. Or That's like good. the object, the, the sign for the truth of the object. And she was Elton. So there's a you're and, se, we're yeah. sedu we're seduced by the sign. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it's kind of like the the metaphor that kind of stuck in my head with this. No, and I thought was relevant to that because he sends the sensuous trap. The sensuous right. sign lays a trap for us and invites us to seek their meaning in the object that bears or emits them, so that the possibility of failure, the abandonment of interpretation, is like the worm in the fruit, and so that decay too, which. Keats no also birds. references, right? No birds sing, right? Yeah. The, the, the sedge the is withered. Yeah, that's great. I mean, um, you know, I, I think that... that, that she that found word. me roots of sweet relish and honey wild and manadu mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, that's... I think this is really... This is, this is a, a good... This is like swans. This is the trap lake for swan. And the narrator. The swan is a dead with the narrator's Albertine. And the narrator is able to circumvent that 
that track laid. Um, and I know you're, you're, you're keen on that too. So say a thing about that. Where's the line? What's the line about laying a trap? She lulled me to sleep. She lulled me to sleep. <laughs> lulled, lulled yeah. me to sleep. There I dreamed. I will betide. The late, latest dream I ever dreamt on the cold hillside. One of the things with Shelly that I see very clearly in the anxiety of it's like, you know, you have Wordsworth who is, in a certain sense, pushing the politics left and is, but it's, but it's been still, it, it's, it's, it's robed in this, this majesticness and he's the poet laureate and like he's, he's crowned and he's, He's King Colors is obviously off doing his opium and talking about Xanadu and all that shit. Um, you know, I think Shelley was one of his first sonnets. God, you might have to look this up for me. Um, it's, it starts off an old, mad, blind, despised king. I think that's how it starts, right? He's writing about fucking, um, George III, I believe. England in 1819, that's it. This is great. An old, mad, blind, despised, and dying king, princes, the dregs of their gold race, who flow through public scorn, mud to a muddy spring, rulers who neither see nor feel nor know, but least like to the fainting country claim till they drop blind and blood without a blow, a heap of starved and stabbed in the unsafe field, an army who libertacide and prey makes us a two edged sword to all who yield. Golden and salmon laws, which tempt and slay. Religion, priceless, godless, a book sealed. A senate, time's worst statute, unrepealed. Our graves, from which a glorious phantom may burst to illumine our tempestuous day. Like, he, he did burn fucking both ends of the candle. He died young, and, and, and you had that, that photo, that, that great, photo of his, of his fire. Obviously, that's not a beautiful sonnet in the in a formal sense. He's already kind of looking, you can see in Shelley in the way that he doesn't cling to the iambic and isn't um, necessarily following the most beautiful, well, no, actually his rhyme scheme's fine, but it's the, it's the rhythm. The rhythm's a little bit more strung to use the term to describe Gerard Manley Hopkins, who we talked about the last time all four of us were gathered. Yeah, like he's got that revolutionary fervor and and, and Bloom tries to I think Watery would not like anxiety records. I think he would he would say, Okay, yeah, sure, but like we're we're Keith and Shelley trying to be the new romantics, right? Is that like what you would call them? Is were they just enamored by 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 daddy and, and and Wordsworth and Polish were like their super egos that like, you know, drove them to a certain fervor that extinguished their, their lamp too soon. I, I know Blake. I wonder if even like Blake, yeah. Blake as well as kind of like on the cusp of romanticism. I mean, yeah, that's the thing. Blake is more. If, if there's a daddy to romanticism, it's not Wordsworth and Coleridge. It's definitely Blake. I mean, the Red Dragon, that's why, I, that's one of the really, even though the movie is great, the book is terrible. Um, but that's a missed opportunity there. I mean, Blake is, is so much 
he's he's, a, he's so much ahead of his time. And we could even talk about art there with the engravings, right? The poems with oh, the his, engravings. I think his paint, the Ancient of Days, is like my favorite, one of my favorite paintings. Period. Oh yeah, you shared it with me. You taught me something. I mean, that that just shows how much Blake did Ancient of Days. Yeah, pull it up. So what is this? What what is the and the the listener can obviously look this, look up the Ancient of Days. What does this do for you? Or what made you think about it? Was it was it the Red Dragon thing that I posted? no, just Blake mm-hmm. just thing of romanticism and Blake. Uh, I don't know. I just love the the minimalist mm. appeal of it um, because you so, have that. And there's something weird about like look at his uh, his stance or his posture. Yeah, his posture is very mm-hmm. interesting, and the little like lightning bolt or whatever that's supposed to represent. So he's a, he's either a Zeus figure, but he's not. Yeah. he's not Zeus. No, it's more like a weird. Right. Uh, Blake had his whole own weird mytho- mythological. Yep, he got it from. Uh, he got it from what, the, the Swiss, uh, the Swiss guy, Swedenberg. I think his name was Swedenberg. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is alchemy. This is a typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the Recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange. 